house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. There are so many unforgettable movie images we have cherished and relived over the years. They've become as familiar and special to us as pages in our own family album. Sometimes a scene in a movie becomes part of our lives, and as time goes by, those images remain to remind us of how deeply affected we were by them and continue to be. Hello, I'm Olivia de Havilland. And I'm Joan Fontaine. And welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz Film Institute Presents 100 Years, 100 Snubs. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, you hear us talk about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another it all went wrong, the Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy, usually... But for this May miniseries, we're doing something a little different. Every week in May, we'll be looking back and choosing the 100 greatest Oscar snubs of all time. Greatest, you say? That's for us to decide. And we'll have special guests calling in to offer their choice for snub submissions. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my sister, who secretly but not so secretly hates me, Chris File. Hello, Chris. We are noted for having um, a famous photo (laughs) where one of us is heading towards an Oscar and the other one is... Sure. <laughs> or that? What was it? No, she she has her Oscar and is the other scenes scaveling. Yeah. What did Joan win for? Joan won for Suspicion, the Hitchcock. Sure. sure. And Olivia won twice, right? So she's yes, got that. But after. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So that's like the kind of billing where it's like the first one is low and the second one is high, so you right. can read it as. As both ways, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you saying Joan Fontaine was high safe? <laughs> Listen, you brought that up. No, I'm just saying that Joan Fontaine can be like, well, at least I was first, and Olivia de Havilland can be like, at least I was twice. So um, <laughs> they can each I have their Joan own little was first. I'm pretty sure Joan was first yeah. because I think that's what pissed Olivia de Havilland off. And it's like sure. their whole ri- their whole sisterly rivalry was very in the press, but also very real between them. But yeah. uh, depending on what report you read, it was mostly Olivia de Havilland being sure an asshole. Sure. Uh, listen, we uh, we stay. We ended up standing Olivia de Havilland because she lived longer, which I feel like right. is perhaps the best revenge. But uh, yeah. Um, we are, of course, on part two of our 100 Years 100 Snubs journey. Last week, we gave you the first 20 plus two uh, guests choice options for some of the greatest Oscar snubs of all time. When we say greatest, we mean in our words. We, we are, Because we said so. We are the arbiters of our own list. It is our podcast, our rules. And so... We are here today with 20 more choices. We've got some more guests lined up to offer their choices for uh, 100 Years 100 Snubs. And before we go on, though, Chris, I want to talk about our inspiration here, which is the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, which aired on CBS 
1998. I'm like 99.9% sure it aired in the summertime because that's like classic summertime programming, right? You could devote an entire weeknight out of your schedule to, you know, movie nerds. and But it was sold as this American – it was like sold like the Kennedy Center honors kind of, right? Where it's like yes. American cultural – this is your – this is your cultural duty to sit here for three hours <laughs> and watch this list. And honestly, like in the days of obviously cable TV and, and, and HBO and all those sort of things were a thing in 1998, but network TV still held its sway. And so in these days where people did still kind of gather around the television and watch, I remember this being an event. I can't remember whether I watched it with my parents or like I watched it and my parents were like also there. <laughs> but like I definitely like had this date circled in the calendar and you I was not going to miss this uh this special. I don't know if you being younger than me at the time had a little bit of a different experience. No, I mean I I definitely watched it. I definitely watched multiple of the AFI specials and obviously yeah. this one did well enough for them to justify doing some of the sillier later ones like thrills passions right some i don't know if all of those got specials though but like there were multiple uh specials because this drew in enough but it also permeated a culture more than just like a special that aired on tv i remember blockbuster having a huge thing for it where Mm. you know Yep. You get your Oh yeah, I'm sure a lot of people watch that you've seen. I was going to say I'm sure a lot of people took that as as a uh almost like a reading list but uh but for movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course um, there was discourse at the time about Citizen Kane because we can't have a large cultural list without, you know, discourse <laughs> right. being involved. We talked a little bit about last episode about Fargo being the most recent entry, even only at 96 or something Mm -hmm. from 1996. And, you know, there was still even discourse of, was that too soon? Right. Uh, Pulp Fiction, I believe, was also on the list, too, as another Those were the two, those two and and Schindler's List were, like, essentially the only, I think they were the only 90s movies, those, Mm -hmm. those three, to make the list. But, um, yeah, it's... It was a moment, and it was something where I was already, I think I had already by that point turned the corner towards, like, movies are my thing. And mm-hmm. and this was a good way of, at a time when, you know, obviously the internet existed and IMDb existed, but, like, you, you didn't have as many outlets to sort of permeate you with things like film history, and there wasn't, you know, a film... Twitter or and I was still in high school. I would think I was just out of high school when this aired. I mean, at this point, yes, IMDb existed, but people forget what early days IMDb was, you know. Well, and when you're still on dial up internet, you know what I mean? You can't really like spend all day on the internet or like hours at a time. Like you can only spend 20 minutes before somebody in your house picks up the phone receiver unwittingly and and kicks you offline. The scourge of of, uh, early internet. (laughs) So this was a this was uh, a great way of getting in the span of one evening this like sweep of film history that was certainly not like comprehensive but like as as comprehensive as you could get for something at the time and so this was probably the first time I had heard about some of these movies certainly stuff like Bridge on the River Kwai or Bringing Up Baby or you know, 
uh, an American in Paris or Shane. You know, this was, I was just about to go to college and that was the first time I would take film courses in anything. And that was, uh, so before that, I, you know, maybe had heard about like there was a movie version of MASH before the television show. And there was, um, you know, uh, Ben Hur was a movie that would be on cable a lot or something like that, certainly like The Sound of Music. But mm-hmm. otherwise, there's a lot of movies in here that I imagine I saw, I heard about for the first time watching this special. And Even if you had was, heard of them, there were probably a lot that you hadn't seen. So the idea of this, especially as a young cinephile, is like, mm-hmm. here's a chock full of homework that you have for yeah, yeah, you know, the immediate future. And to see what all of these other people in the culture said about it, what was, you know, what were the the talking points on these movies. And yeah, it's pretty... It was pretty impactful for me as a young person. The more when I watched it again on YouTube, I was sort of reminded again how just how impactful it was. And so, yeah, so that's what we took as our inspiration for our 100 years, 100 snubs. Chris, you know, you do the rules much better than I do. So I'm going to have you step in and, uh, and once again do a, lay out a, the ground a rules. A rules rundown yes. to hopefully not uh, be as uh, long as we were the. Yes, we had a long episode. The jumpstart episode. Gonna, uh, yeah. But we're here, we're here to have fun. Settle in, guys. Okay, so. Here's how, as a quick reminder, this is going to go. We are only choosing one snub per category per year. If it merits conversation that there might be something else you would expect or maybe multiple options, we might mention it. But for our purposes, we are only picking one of each. Yes. We will also choose the nominee from that category that will be replaced. If we replace the winner, we are calling that the house down boot. We also observe the right to enact the Nicole Page Brooks rule where we send all those bitches home. Yes. Uh, and then our guests that will be coming in that will be on top of our list of 100. Once again, we are here to talk movies, not math. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Movies not math t-shirts, I feel like is is in the offing <laughs> at some point. Yes. That they made those as the counter campaign, the smear campaign for uh Beautiful Mind. Yeah, right, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh yeah, so our guests are free to do whatever they want. They are not beholden to our strictures and rules and they were given kind of free reign. So And yet uh, our guests are brilliant. We love them and yes. uh their picks are canon too. Oh yeah, no, we we uh, wouldn't know what to do without our our uh, guests, and so we've got another couple lined up for this episode. We are very excited to have them. You will hear from them when the time comes. Otherwise, Chris, crack your knuckles. I think we're ready to go. Are we kicking it off? Are we kicking it off? Kicking do we have Trisha Yearwood to send us uh, <laughs> with a ticket to dream? Uh, t- just, Trisha has stamped our tickets to Dream, and we are ready to board that. Uh, I don't know. There Polar should be a Express. bridge song between a ticket to Dream and How Do I Live? How Do I Dream? <laughs> right, exactly. This would have been the year, right? This would have been the same year as How Do No How Do I Live was ninety seven. So this was Trisha Yearwood was hot coming off of that Oscar nomination for uh, for that movie. Listen, in the contention of who had the better How Do I Live. Trisha Yearwood or Leanne Rhymes, uh, this was the prize. They got to do a shitty song on a TV special. An Oscar-nominated song with two hit versions in two 
essentially two mediums, because Leanne Rhymes' version was mostly a pop version and Trisha's was a country version. To have all of that surrounding a piece of shit movie like Con Air is very funny to me. Like that's that's history. That's you know not what a I Diane mean? nomination, is it? Did Diane write that song? I feel like I yes. conflate that because it's so close yes. to Armageddon. Which she definitely did write. Hold right. on, how do I live? I'm looking it up. Um, okay, it's weird that I don't you say have that the all Leanne of the Rhymes version is a pop version, but those are two female country artists. It is. It's not like they had no. Mariah Carey and Trisha Yearwood, where it's like let's right. do it with an R&B artist. But like, but there was some there was some issue, like not issue, but like there was a thing at the time about like Leanne Rhymes sort of veering towards pop and away from country. Sure. That absolutely was a Diane Warren song. I should have I should have known that off the top of my head. It felt right, but yes, I, I just confirmed. Yes. So Diane Warren, that was the the late 90s run of Diane Warren where it was like up close and personal song. Uh, uh, how do I live? Uh, don't want to miss a thing. And somehow these are all giant hits, inescapable. You could not get away from them in the late 90s. And somehow she lost for all of them. And that is why we have what we have today, which is uh, an unstoppable freight train of Diane Warren nominations. Not even a governor's award could... Uh, could derail. Listen, the Diane Warren, no- Warren nominations are basically AI generated at this point. <laughs> it is word salad of lyrics, vaguely oh, inspirational anthems, and uh, the movies themselves are AI generated after Telelacoa. <laughs> Give yourself a round of applause for listening to uh, to her nominated song this year is what I will say. Okay. You know, this, this May miniseries is nothing if not... Um, us giving ourselves and these snubs some applause. A round of applause, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, Chris, you are first up in the order for this part two, 100 Years, 100 Snubs, ready when you are. I am very ready. Okay. Let's go. Let's get into it. Let's take a trip. Thunderdome music. Let's get into it. Okay. okay. Thank you for the horse. You liked him. No, it's beautiful. But I thought we were going sailing today. You promised. Uh, So listeners may think that this is just a nod to our running bits uh, on this podcast, but it is not. Um, But this one is definitely for all the weird gays who love the cell. We are talking about best costume design in the year 2000 for Aiko Ishioka's costuming for the cell. Um, How did this miss? How the hell? Especially did this when miss? it got a makeup nomination. That's and, what I'm saying. You know, Aiko Shioka would go on to have more uh, costume design nominations. Uh, How many saying. after this? She had already won for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's probably only Mirror Mirror after this. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, I think so. You know, yeah. Mirror Mirror, which was that a posthumous nomination or did she die shortly after the nomination? Definitely by the time the Oscars had happened. Um, I suppose it's something I could look up very quickly and see. Um, Aiko Ishioka, great costume designer, died January 21st, 2012. So, yeah, this would have been right around the time of nominations. Like, yeah, um, yeah so. Yeah. Just, a, just an absolutely incredible singular artist that, you know, people 
continue to draw inspiration from from her work both on the stage and in movies yeah you know no question her uh costuming win for bram stoker's dracula remains my favorite oscar win of all time it's utterly unchallenged yeah um you know talk about uh not understanding the assignment writing the assignment writing the assignment for future generations sure uh, sure a complete imagination, you know, give that woman posthumously any budget that she wants to have to create incredible things. And in The Cell, it's like, there's a lot going on in that movie, design-wise, and the movie itself, while wonderful and we love it, is kind of gross junk in a lot of ways, but, like, they did honor the makeup design. You could honor production design. You could honor visual effects for that movie. It's... The cell is what if a uh, visual artist made remade Kiss the Girls, essentially. (laughs) Right? Because it's directed by Tarsem. It's also kind of like, what if a what if Nine Inch Nails music video wanted to disembowel (laughs) you? You know, which they kind of already do. Um, And like, there's so many incredible. uh, I mean, it's not to be gowns, beautiful gowns about it, but a lot of the these costumes that are so memorable and iconic are, you know jennifer lopez looks and i remember when they did the j-lo yeah. runway on drag race we were like who's gonna do the cell who's gonna do the cell and before we remembered that like copyright laws yeah, exactly. are the bane of of anything cool that nothing cool can happen because uh things are trademarked and you know you know the thing with with night of a thousand whatever's on drag race is they are limited by only anything that can be replicated in a Getty image because yes. they need to show the side by side. And that is we are held hostage from entertainment at the highest levels by Getty images that should gall everybody. Like we should yes. not stand for that. We are a country. We used to be a we used to have a society. <laughs> we should not be held hostage by Getty images of all things. My God. Um but I mean I think part of what a huge part of the visual appeal of this movie is the costuming and you know Aiko Ishioka is a legend could yeah. not have a list of snubs even though it's my favorite Oscar win of all time because maybe we should have just nominated every single time she stepped up to bat I will uh, say the nominees that year are very costumey so like it's it's a lot of most costumes going on sure 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 Gladiator's the win Uh, the other nominations are 102 Dalmatians Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Quills right I'm giving the boot unfortunately to a movie that I think we've come around on though people don't I don't think people think that it's good but people do enjoy this movie and I think initially it was like this is a piece of junk that's just making a bunch of money and it's how the Grinch stole Christmas I mean you know there's iconic characters and such uh like Christine Baranski but it's a lot of Santa costumes you know that are either corseted or uh Here's my question. As I'm looking through the costume design nominations throughout the years, I guess 101 Dalmatians did not get nominated. So I guess 102 is the makeup nominee. Otherwise, I would be like, haven't we already rewarded Glenn Close as Cruella DeVille enough? You know what I mean? But I guess. has the like crazy costumes, though. Okay. All right. I don't think I've ever seen 102. I think I've only ever seen the first one, so I can't speak on that. It's goofy. You should watch it. I guess 101, I didn't. I liked enough. I liked it, you know, to a point. Um, 
It is kind of amazing the chokehold that Cruella DeVille has on the costume design nomination because we also, of course, uh, uh, Cruella won, right? Two years ago? Yes. God. Ugh. Kind of. No, I uh, say what you will about Cruella. The costumes in that, Jenny Bevan's costumes in that were fucking fierce. I love like, Jenny Bevan, but I hated that movie. I hated that movie so much. Um, all right. Anyway, so you're anyway. booting uh, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I am. Okay. That's fair. I I I I raise a skeptical eye at quills in general, but yeah, that's fair. I like quills. Yeah. All right. Should I uh, jump in with my next one? Yes. Yes. What are you kicking off part two of this episode with? Hi, baby. Um, it's me. It's Vanessa. I can't wait to meet you. I am nothing if not a crowd pleaser. So in this way, I am choosing. Uh, this is this. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of pushback from the audience on this <laughs> one. This was this is somebody who we talk about constantly, uh, and in terms of this performance, constantly as somebody who I would say not only deserved a nomination, but like would have been one of my top uh, performances in this category uh, this whole year. So this is back to the year 2007 in the Best Supporting Actress category. The uh, the great Jennifer Garner and her performance in Juno as Vanessa. It is her best work in film. Uh, Jennifer Garner is an actress I, in general, really love. I was an Alias fan back in the day. So I think anybody who is an Alias fan sort of has a place in their heart for Jennifer Garner. And her film career has been spotty real spotty you know what i mean highs and 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 several lows but this was the perfect role i think a lot of this is owed to the screenplay and that diablo cody makes the surprising decision to invest in this character who may otherwise have been pretty two-dimensional she's a square she's sort of she's everything that juno isn't and and juno sort of sees her at that at first right and the brilliant thing about diablo cody's screenplay for juno is the way that it takes those preconceived notions and then moves with them and moves these two characters closer to each other in a way that i think is wonderful but i think it doesn't work if jennifer garner isn't holding up her end of the bargain, right? Elliot Page does a tremendous job as Juno, and I think Jennifer Garner has to be not only sympathetic, but you have to, under, you have to in a couple scenes, in a couple really rel- rel- revelatory scenes, understand everything there is to know about her. And she does in the scene in the mall where she, you know, touches Juno's belly and she feels the baby for the first time. And it says, hi, Barbie. Uh, says <laughs> hi, you lunatic. Uh, Chris's new thing is that Je- that Jennifer Garner says hi, Barbie, to uh, to Juno's belly in that movie. Um, it it haunts me to this day. Um, but it's that scene, and then it's her sort of breakup scene with Jason Bateman, where she kind of, you know, makes the choice of not tethering herself to this man who's never going to get beyond his need to feel young and cool, and it all works. And it and she's such a huge part of that. And she was a star then, you know what I mean? Like she was mm-hmm. it's it's sort of surprising that with everything that Juno had going for it in award season, that it only really mounted one 
acting campaign. This is and what I, I was going to say. It feels like you have to have a second performance from Juno on this list somewhere. Yeah. Simply because when you watch that movie now, while I think Elliot Page is tremendous, it's theme, it seems so silly that Elliot Page is the only performer yeah. nominated from this ensemble. And like, I would have, if I honestly, if that movie's made today, J.K. Simmons gets a supporting actor nomination out of that. You know well, I mean? yeah, because supporting actor is all about cuddly dads now. Right, right. Um, Who's but, a cuddly dad this year? They're getting at least nominated. I guarantee, I guarantee you, they will. Someone will get bonus points for just being a cuddly dad in the Oscar yeah. season. Because I'm trying to think of who, love. who in the movies coming up. I can't think of any off the top of my head as a cuddly dad, but we'll see if you're right. We're, we'll we'll clip this at the end of the year and we'll see if you're right. So, who to boot off of this list is is a challenge. This was the famous like 2007 supporting actress year where everybody kind of gets some kind of precursor, right? Tilda had won the BAFTA, Ruby D had won the SAG, Amy Ryan won a bunch of critics awards. Sersha didn't really win anything, but she's the kid. And sometimes the kid gets extra bonus points, especially in supporting actress, right? Your Tatum O'Neill's and your your Anna Paquins and whatnot. Uh and then Kate Blanchett had won the Golden Globe. So going into Oscar night, the momentum was kind of everywhere. And so looking at this list Obviously, Tilda's my favorite. Like, I'm not getting rid of Tilda. Um, I think Amy Ryan is very good in Gone Baby Gone. And I'm not taking away Amy Ryan's one Oscar nomination. I take it away from Sersha because she has so many others, but I think she's tremendous in Atonement. And I think she's so crucial to that movie sort of getting off on the foot that it gets off on. And so I'm sort of down to... Ruby D in American Gangster, which is a good performance in a role that doesn't really ask much. I know she slaps Denzel in the face in the one scene, and it's great whatever, scene. and I love Ruby D. It's a great scene, and she's a great actress, but I'm not sure in 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 total what how much how impressive that is stacked up to everything else. And then there's Kate Blanchett in I'm Not There, a movie that I confess I've only ever seen the one time. Great and movie. She it's a great movie, and I think she, you know, is doing some really interesting work playing, you know, this, you know, uh, obviously male character, this version of Bob Dylan, but it's, you know, the androgyny is is baked into the the performance there. I, if I'm going to maybe get political for half a second, I'm not going to take away a nomination from a Black actress <laughs> for... Kate Blanchett's like sixth Oscar nomination. You know what I mean? Like in the general pool of things. I know we're not taking it that seriously. I know it's not that deep, but I would just feel weird. And I mean, Ruby Kate D Blanch- should have nominations for other things, maybe, but Absolutely. I, she would yeah. not be who I would boot here. Who would you boot? I would boot Sersha. Yeah. A performance yeah. that I do love and I think is great. Yeah. Um, I think you you have the disadvantage here of actually picking a really great category that the lineup is yes. really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or I would maybe boot Amy Ryan for Gone Baby Gone, though I don't want to take her nomination away. That's probably what I would call the weakest performance of this lineup. Maybe. I'm booting Kate. I'm going to boot. Kate can take it. Kate's fine. She's uh, going to have another, uh, yeah. you she's, know, dozen She's got her Golden Age. Yeah, she's nominated for Elizabeth the Golden Age that year. She's all right. She's doing well. All right, where are you next, Chris? And yet, it was no surprise to me when I finally understood that he was the most beautiful person I had seen in all my life. 
right, so uh, coming to a much more recent nominee, one of the mo- not nominee, <laughs> one of the most recent snubs of all of my picks. We know I have strong feelings about this. You should go back and listen to us on the Screen Drafts Best Picture Follow Ups episode with us. That's and right, Rich. Yeah, um, we're talking about Best Picture in 2018, and I chose If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Barry Jenkins's other masterpiece. Yeah. Um, I, listen, if you haven't seen the movie already, what the hell are you doing with your life? Uh, it centers it's really around good. a black family living in Harlem in the mid-century, the 1960s, where the uh, youngest daughter uh, becomes pregnant with her boyfriend, Fonny. Uh, we all celebrated Regina King's performance i think she was never not going to win that oscar for supporting actress however i think the circumstances around that movie not getting a best picture nomination i would place a lot of the blame on annapurna which yeah was a production company that then decided to do their own distribution didn't do all that great um as a distributor quickly kind of went under we don't really talk about Annapurna going under anymore because they went under in 2019, basically. Or right. they didn't go under. <laughs> it's Megan Ellison, who is a billionaire. They didn't lose billions of dollars. Are you saying that Megan Ellison let the, the COVID virus out of a lab on purpose so that uh, we could distract so, from so that the failures of Annapurna could... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but they also put all of their efforts and... Yeah. Uh, finances and all of that behind Adam McKay's Vice, a movie that absolutely no one likes. And I think a lot of us were in agreement when all those Oscar nominations happened that if Oscar nominations happened a week or two later, it probably wouldn't have all of those Oscar nominations because it did really, it was a movie that was kind of a fast fade, like the type of thing that, you know, they're always going to kind of vote, especially if they don't have time to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, it won a makeup Oscar, but nothing, you know, it wasn't a threat to win any no. of its other nominations. Um, and it's a horrible movie. And you are kind of spoiled for choice, though, in this, in this best picture category in terms of what to get rid of. This is, this is the trick of the, and part of the reason why I, you know, this is a genuine masterpiece movie that, yeah. and this is a, I don't, I mean, okay. There are, great movies and inarguable best picture nominees in this lineup but there is also yeah usually there's one really bad movie or a movie that we can all agree on is not that great yeah. there are three real pieces of shit in this lineup green book wins the other nominees yes. are black clansman black panther bohemian rhapsody which i think was probably second place to best picture well this is the question because i was going to say the temptation is going to be well if i get rid of green book something else will win but if you get rid of green book the something else that will win is very possibly bohemian also rhapsody. horrible right um the favorite Roma, A Star is Born, and again, Vice. I feel like the temptation is to get rid of Vice, because if Vice is gone, then maybe Annapurna could have made it happen for this movie. Yeah. Um, You know, this movie that continues to, you know, like on rewatch, have just as raw, if not more, of an emotional Mm -hmm. experience when you watch it, versus Vice, which no one has watched since 2019. Right. Um, However... 
you know, I'm not necessarily thinking if I get rid of this one, I can get rid of, uh, you know, I c- it makes for a better Best Picture winner. I'm just going to get rid of Green Book. It is... sure. A leg- you know, so many, so many things are just better if it's not there. So Green Book is getting the house down boot, and maybe Roma does win instead. Maybe it's not Bohemian Rhapsody. Maybe it is Roma. I that think holds it's Bohemian on. Rhapsody. Well, it's very possible. Um, <laughs> what a world! What a world in 2018. The highs and lows of that Best Picture category. We talked about this very recently, but like, it really is something. Like some of my favorite movies of that year nominated. Right, The Favorite mm-hmm. and Star Is Born. I really love Roma. Um, Black Panther, and then it's like, oh God, the 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 other end of that spectrum is just <sighs> right. Oscars, we love them. We love them. All right, we do. Uh, are you perhaps taking us into a sunnier time than the times of Green Book winning? Uh, I am best picture. Hope dangles on a string like slow spinning redemption, winding in and winding out. The shine of it has caught my eye and roped me in so mesmerizing, so hypnotizing. I am. We're going to go into the mid-aughts for this one. So when we decided we were going to do this project, 100 Years and 100 Snubs, I had a few that jumped immediately to mind. And then there were some others that didn't cross my mind until I was scanning through the years and sort of going through my my files and my documents and the movies. And when this movie came across my notice, I knew exactly the nominee that I was going to choose for it. And it was, I I would not be deterred. Uh, 2004, best original song. I am choosing Vindicated from Spider-Man 2, Words and Music by Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional. It absolutely should have been an oscar nominee it was a hit movie (laughs) spider-man 2 is an oscar winner in visual effects the other nominees this year were almost uniformly bad (laughs) like this is if also people are coming out and being like well did this actually qualify for the oscars rules for a best original song we can just say i'm gonna tell you eligibility things they maybe need to go away a little bit. To Chris Caraba so. wrote this after watching a screening of Spider-Man 2, a pre-release screening. So, like, this there movie was so written would have been... for this movie. This was not on any other... Like, this was written for Spider-Man 2. It appears in the It's not like those Hunger Games soundtracks where it's just like, no. we got a bunch of B-sides sitting around. Right. No, this one was, like, fully eligible. It's only, I would say... Um, genre snobbery that that takes it like oscar voters never go for songs like this they would never go for like alt rock stuff or or this in this is sort of post alt rock emo whatever like oh it's pop um, punk are you a dashboard were you ever a dashboard person i'm saying i'm guessing no i'm hoping i'm not severing our friendship but like oh it's not whole, that big of a deal to me whole, i just like, i'm curious punk emo yeah. set was a little lost on me most for the most part me too but i really loved dashboard conventional (laughs) everything i listened to them i really really enjoyed um so i would have been uh, were they the screaming infidelities people yes they were okay i just remember being in high school and like yeah annoying people singing screaming infidelities but the only lyrics that they would sing 
was the title of the song. It's like, do you not listen to the rest of the song? Like, I what? feel like if I had gone to a co-ed high school at the time that Dashboard was popular, I probably wouldn't have been a fan because I think that would have probably turned me off a little bit. That's sort of like, I mean, overly... it was mostly dudes. Like, well, no, I it was it was emo friends. Both. It's nothing wrong with the people, but like the yeah. music just never caught on to me. The closest thing like pop punk that I got into was Avril Lavigne. Naturally. Sure. Sure, of course. Avril Lavigne, who was just as posturing as any of the other ones, get me started on... She was uh, also, like, the... 16 years old. No wonder she was mm. a jerk. And Canadian, so, She's a yeah. kid. Um, yeah. Um, okay, give me, give me on a rant. Give us these nominees. Okay. Uh, anyway. Nominees in 2004 for original song are a real fucking piece of work. Uh, winner is uh, Al Otro Lado del Rio from The Motorcycle Diaries, which was performed on the Oscars oh, by Antonio Banderas because uh, they did not trust Jorge Drexler to have the star power to carry a musical performance, which whatever, fair. Um, Accidentally in Love from Shrek 2, which was performed on the Oscars by uh, Adam Duritz and the Counting Crows. And then a trio of songs that were so listless and uninspiring that they were like, how are we going to get anybody to watch these? Fine, we'll have Beyonce perform all of them on the Oscars. (laughs) So this would be uh, Learn to be Lonely, the bonus song written by Andrew Lloyd Webber for the Phantom of the Opera movie. Uh, Look to Your Path from the French film The Chorus. And then Believe, the Josh Groban song from the Polar Express that Josh Groban and Beyonce sing as a duet on the Oscars. So I watched all of these performances again this morning to remind myself. I had absolutely forgotten that in addition to Beyonce wearing a metric ton of jewels for the <laughs> Learn to Be Lonely performance, that she performs the mo- for the most part at the top of this like stairway and then at some point is guided down the steps by somebody dressed up as the phantom of the opera absolutely had forgotten that that was a whole thing that beyonce and the phantom of the opera shared stage space at the oscars at one point phantom of the Um, opera uh rest in peace on broadway uh look to your path which is titled in english but she sung that whole thing in french on the oscars uh and then she duets with uh uh josh groban on uh believe so it's one of these three that i'm gonna boot i'm gonna let the counting crows be the counting crows and whatever um uh the that right least, song that... one the right song one sure yes the least objectionable of the four i don't think i'll Lado del rio was objectionable but like pay me a billion dollars to hum that tune and i could not do it um the thing about the uh the beyonce three in this case learn to be lonely has like seven lyrics and they're just repeated constantly and like it's really is uh is emphasized when you when you see beyonce sing it on the oscars and yet it's sung in the film by minnie driver and i guess it's over closing closing credits right it's not really even made part of which is a bullshit way to get an oscar nomination i hate that trend so the temptation is to boot that one for that but the minnie driver adjacency is you know gives it a point in its favor look to your path Again, Beyonce sings in French on the Oscars, which you want to give it bonus points for that because uh, that was a moment. It's not a memorable song from not a memorable movie. And I think if it got disappeared from an Oscar lineup, nobody would ever miss it. Well, now we talk about the trend of documentary songs you've never heard getting nominated for Oscars. There was like a mini trend of foreign language, songs yeah. from French movies getting yes. <laughs> original song nominations. Yes, yes. Uh, Believe has absolutely the most trite and insipid lyrics of all of them, but 
believe is the only one where I can I can hear that chorus in my head. You know what I mean? Like that's the only one that has a. I can hear "Learn to Be Lonely," even though there's you know. I think believes the only one that has a successful hook in any kind of way, and I it's do. Everyone yelling at. Uh... Valentina, it's a seven-word chorus, girl. <laughs> Doesn't know the words. Um, <laughs> Shea Coulee's hand motion during that is so funny. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> no, the words. <laughs> so I'm in a real conundrum here. There are there are reasons to boot all of these, and there are reasons to keep all of these. I I think ultimately. I don't hate Josh Groban. I know I'm supposed to hate Josh Groban and find him unbearably square, but I find him charming. And again, the lyrics are genuinely insipid, and The Polar Express is a genuinely like bad movie. And yet, there's uh, enough human of human torture device. The Polar right. Express. <laughs> there's enough of that song that at least exists where I'm gonna boot. Like, I'm just gonna boot. Look to your path. Like God, God bless you if you had anything to do with making the chorus. I don't dislike you, but like that movie is vapor to me <laughs> so um wow. i'm gonna get rid of that i will say if vindicated uh by dashboard confessional is nominated for that it's my number one with a bullet in that category it's so much better than anything it's such a rad song it's fun to sing at karaoke um i love it so so much and it's an oscar nominee in my heart so there we go all right chris where are we going from here in case i don't see you good afternoon good evening and good night Okay, so one thing up at the top that I forgot to mention because I need to add it to our outline. <laughs> we This is all going to be culminating with our bid oh, right. for the <laughs> biggest snub of all time. Right. We're not ranking until we get to the very, very end. Yeah. This next one that I have for us is one that I considered making my choice for that because I do mm. think this is one that sticks out in a lot of people's memory. I feel like, at least in my lifetime, this is the first time I'd ever really maybe heard of someone being snubbed for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like at that time, the type of, you know, snobbery people would have chosen the Oscars of for this. Uh, We're talking Best Actor in 1998, uh, a little-known actor known as Jim Carrey for The Truman Show. (sighs) So good. The Truman Show, which I recently rewatched for this, you know, Mm -hmm. even not watching the movie, this was one I wanted to talk about. And I even for a second thought about making it a best picture snub in Mm -hmm. my mind but that was harder to justify you know when peter weir does get that um uh best director nomination i think it's an even more worthy best picture nominee than a best actor nominee but the jim carrey thing is so you know his not historic but so noteworthy so famous of a snub and it yeah. would you know it would go to continue for him it would happen again the next year for man on the moon which is a significantly not as strong movie right. um and then you would have shit like uh <laughs> go back and listen to our episode on the majestic uh oh god heinous movie. Yeah. um but the thing about jim carrey he rose so incredibly quickly you know the Truman Show is four or five years after he became this massive, massive star. Obviously, he mm-hmm. was on In Living Color before it, but 
Right. You know, in a very, very short time, he was getting, what, $20 million paydays for, was it That's the cable the, guy? He the got famous the thing about Jim Carrey is that, like, he enters the year 1994 as the guy from In Living Color, and then it's Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber, boom, 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 like, all in these the movies same that year. make a ton of money. And, and then like, by the end of 1994, he's, like, the most expensive star in Hollywood, and he right, gets that paycheck right. for the cable guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is... I mean, I love the cable guy, and I think he's great in the cable guy. It's not what audiences were expecting. It was not what audience wanted. It's a very right. dark movie. Um, yeah. To the point where he's making a comeback in 1997 with Liar Liar. Like, that's how exactly. truncated the Jim Carrey moment was. He wins the Globe for The Truman Show. It is, it's still comedic, but, you know, it's pushed as a, a drama. Do you remember and... his line when he accepted the award for The Truman Show? Well, two lines that I remember from that acceptance speech. The one was, uh, it's going to be so hard to talk out of my ass after this. Yeah. Um, and then the other line, though, was, uh, you know what this means. I'm a shoe in for the Blockbuster Award. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember that. I remember the yeah. other one. Yeah. Um, but there is this element of probably the academy couldn't get out, couldn't get past the fact that he's, you know, the guy who talks out of his butt in Ace Ventura or has boogers frozen to his face in Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. And there is a certain level of the Truman Show that is not a showy performance. You know, I think he would go on to have an even more subtle and moving performance in eternal sunshine but i think mm -hmm. there's this kind of intentionality to have an unvarnished performance you know to not be so broad not be so big that does work in the truman show's favor and like yeah the problematic sides of jim carrey uh aside it does really show him as a kind of everyman actor in a way that I think his vulnerability is really interesting in this movie. It's um, interesting that Oscar voters couldn't get past the clownness of Jim Carrey to nominate him for the Truman Show. And yet a decade earlier, basically like welcomed Robin Williams into their loving embrace, starting with Good Morning Vietnam and like, and so many other nominees after nominations after that. And ultimately he wins. It's an interesting, you know, I, dual case there. I would one up that, that it's, they can't get past the clown factor of Jim Carrey, but they award a full ass clown in Roberto Benigni. Well, there's that too. Life is beautiful. This there's year. that too. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there there is a certain, I mean, clown is maybe a strong word, but there is a part of Truman that, you know, is performing, you know, yes. oh, middle yeah. America goodness or whatever that it's is. It's a smart bit of casting in that it, it casts mm -hmm. in a way that you, that you enter the movie on this sort of like big sort of, you know, a little bit of the rubber face Jim Carrey, right? The big right. smile and good afternoon, good evening, and good night, and that whole thing. And he's, you know, almost too square to be believed, that kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. Um. So the nominees, I mentioned Roberto Benigni wins for Life is Beautiful. Uh -huh. Also Tom Hanks for Saving Private Ryan, who I think in the mainstream, people would have expected it to be Tom Hanks. But I think if you look at that lead up, Ian McCullen probably had the bigger shot between the two I remember the I remember the narrative going into that fall being well Hanks 
can't win because he's won two so recently. And that it was between Ian McKellen and Nick Nolte for mm-hmm. who was Nick Nolte, win. who's nominated for Affliction, he was also such a strong contender, too, that a kind Even though of... nobody saw Affliction. Like, a few people saw Gods and Monsters, but even fewer saw Affliction. Exactly. Well, I think, I think it maybe had a qualifying release. I forget. Yeah. This is also, I believe, early Lionsgate. Um, and ultimately, no. Coburn wins. So, like, enough people see it for Coburn to Gods win. Gods and Monsters still. is early Lionsgate. Um, yes, yes but is. Nick Nolte is such a contender that it gets James Coburn this kind of late nomination that I think he didn't really show up much in the precursors. And then James Coburn wins. Um, just because over. Like, oh, yeah. James Coburn has been in movies for decades. Maybe we'll give him an Oscar. Over Ed Harris for The Truman Show, who was the one who was sort of the front runner going into the Oscars. Yeah. 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 Um, and then Edward Norton, who's kind of the somewhat surprise nominee, nominee for Very. American History X, who runs surprise. his own campaign. Yeah. Uh, obviously a very fraught production where he basically stole the movie from the director, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But um, that one, that one was not in the precursor season at all. That, that was, had buzz going into season and then kind of seemed like it died. I saw the movie and it was like, Ooh, <laughs> well, but then all of a sudden, just last minute it was, cause it is, it's a pretty tremendous performance. Like I know that like Edward Norton, yada, yada, he's a terror on set, yada, 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 whatever. Uh, Profoundly unpleasant movie, et cetera. But he's so good in it. Like right. he really is, and and terrifying right. in the in the in the flashbacks where he's, you know, uh, a, a neo Nazi and all that, and and really. So yeah, and this was smack in the middle of the Edward Norton is our finest American film actor. You know what right. I mean? Right. Era. Yeah. 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 Um, if I'm an Oscar voter and I have a ballot that year, I'm without question voting for Ian McCullen. Same. Um. My boot, however, to replace with Jim Carrey, it's another house down boot for me. Roberto Benigni winning, mm-hmm. not just because he's jumping on chairs and such. I think that that is a horrendous, offensive movie yeah. um, that I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not surprised. It it was a Miramax, Miramax pushed that movie. That movie was around for a while. And, and, and I will say. It's just, oi. People, I will say, though, genuinely loved it. A lot of people yes. saw that movie and 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 not in a cynical way, I think. And to, to the point where it was tough for me to talk to people about that movie, because to talk about why why I didn't like that movie, I had to I, you you almost have to be like, you got to be a real sap to buy into the shit that he's shoveling in this movie. You know what I mean? You because also have like, to to like not to be like oh to awaken people but to like right talk about what is offensive about that movie some people just don't get it or haven't thought that deeply about it and right. and you essentially have to and i hate doing this you have, you to, have to, to be instructor to people and that's, you have to tell people like you've you, not that you're watching it wrong because i really do despise that that thing and the people are allowed right. to take whatever they want from a movie but to talk about why you don't like that movie you have to be like the central premise of this movie to me is so false and so bankrupt and that central premise is what the people who love that movie love about it that it's right. this you know triumph over this horrible circumstance into to you know uh that within this thing that you can't do anything about that this father tries to make an alternate you know reality essentially for his kid or whatever and 
the people who love that movie bought into that. And I'm not saying right. they, they, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say that you didn't like it without being like, they fell for it. But like, um, so it's hard. I don't like talking about this movie for this very reason. Like, yeah. I don't like telling people that like, you're wrong for liking this movie. Right. Anyway. Uh, let's move on to your next pick, which, uh, anyone who likes it is right for like, <laughs> last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. I'm going to be more brief about this one, both because uh, some of these need to be brief, but also because we did an entire fairly lengthy episode, episode 91, go find it on the film Zodiac uh, and why we loved it. I am choosing my snub to be 2007 best director, David Fincher for Zodiac. Um, Everything we said in that episode, everything, all the choices he makes in that movie are tremendous. It's my favorite. Fincher movie. It's the one that I think his directorial achievement is the most pronounced. I think it's the movie that we'll remember him for. I mean, we're going to remember him for a lot of movies. He's going to be one of those directors that we remember for, you know, quite a bit, but this is, this is the top one for me. And, um, the way he harnesses this true story and, and is rigorous enough to, stay on the plausible margins of it you know what i mean he he never um goes beyond what information is publicly available so even when he depicts some of the murders every thing with the killer is very shrouded and you know it leads you to come to these suppositions and conclusions or whatever and it guides you on around a path but it's um very meticulous and very careful. And the scenes that are scary in this movie are so incredibly terrifyingly scary. But other otherwise, it is a you know, a shoe leather sort of like investigation kind of thing. And watching, you know, uh, Mark Ruffalo and Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. sort of try to crack this case. There are so many sort of interesting little detours and and characters. The Brian Cox character is so interesting. John Carroll Lynch is terrifying. Um, Great movie about uh, where its greatness kind of lies and how it's about what it's about. Yes. Yeah. So, again, go back, not to not to be like, here, I'm here to tell you uh, something, now go listen to this other thing, but go listen <laughs> to our episode on Zodiac, it's really good. Okay, so the nominees in 2007 for Best Director, this was, we just talked about it when we talked about the Juno year, so uh, Jason Reitman's nominated for Juno, Tony Gilroy for Michael Clayton, Julian Schnabel for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Paul Thomas Anderson for There Will Be Blood, and then the winners are Joel and Ethan Cohen at long last for No Country for Old Men. 2007 is a very good year for movies, and sometimes very good years for movies end up with real shit in a Best Picture lineup. I'm thinking, you know, 1999 is a good example of like what, you know, 1999's Best Actor or Best Picture lineup does not reflect the greatness of what's going on in 99. 2007, it's closer, right? You got No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, Juno. These are all really great movies. Somehow, and it still puzzles me to this day, 
that the narrative for Lone Director settled on Julian Schnabel for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, a movie which is okay. <laughs> like, I, I, what's the hook for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? What were people, I get that like Julian Schnabel was this sort of, you know, filmmakers, filmmaker. He was a, he was, you know, he had this real air of, auteur to him right that he uh, you know uh, cultivated and he was difficult and he was irascible and and yada 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 and i still don't get what it is about the diving etc yeah what was it about the diving bell and the butterfly that hooked people it's not a feel-good movie it's not a uh, I mean, I think the type of voter who sees like the schmaltz of some even if it's not presented and i kind of think it is in that movie the like the emotional story of it you know people who can easily be like well it's about like blah 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 and then the like high artful mindedness people it appealed to a a broad section of people um what are the other julian schnabel movies i guess before nightfalls was him right which had gotten some oscar attention for got a nomination for bardem at eternity's gate gets a nomination for yeah he's weirdly always on in some level or another always on the oscars radar and Mm -hmm. how did what did you think of before nightfalls i thought it was okay again i was like i liked bardem in it more than maybe i liked the movie well, and at the end of the day, when don't I like that actor, you know? That's the thing. It's interesting that it's one... I mean, it was his first Oscar nomination, and, you know, uh, we love that breakthrough, but I think when I think of his career, it's not a performance I think about. It really isn't. And part of it is that he's worked so often since then, and he's right. given... But he's you know, also so many... taken bigger risks. He's done, you know, more... I don't yeah. know. So, but even if, even if, say, Fincher isn't your pick for Lone Director, and, you know, whatever, but, like, there are other options that year. There's, you know, give it to Andrew Dominic for Assassination of Jesse James. Give it to Sarah Polly for, what's that? (laughs) Andrew Dominic never would happen. Keep going. I mean, maybe. It's a nom- it got a nomination for Casey Affleck. It got nominations true, for, like, yeah, cinematography or whatever. But, like, if you're going to... Certainly, it's not like Diving Bell and the Butterfly was all over that, you know, ballot right. either. Um, give it... I know you don't like this movie, but, like, give it to Sean Penn for Into the Wild. You know what I mean? Give it to uh, Sarah Polly for Away From Her. Uh, but in general, it just it puzzles me. So, yeah, Julian Schnabel is a very easy call for me to get uh, to bump off of this lineup. Joe, I think there's a train coming to the station, and uh, oh, someone's no. getting off the train. Oh, the, is that the, has the Polar Express uh, pulled in? It's <laughs> the Polar the... Express! The Polar Express has arrived, and it's oh, not just Santa that's here. We have a guest. Ah, let's listen. Let's take a call. Hey, this at Oscar Buzz. This is Matt Jacobs, an entertainment writer, here to stump for one of my personal, most egregious Oscar snubs, and that is Kathleen Turner in Serial Mom. There are a couple of reasons why she's my choice for this series that you guys are doing. First of all, I think her snub has some interesting pedigree behind it because while we often think of comedy performances as not being the Oscars bread and butter, If you look back at the time period when Serial Mom came out, which was 1994, there actually was this incredible hot streak of comedic performances winning Oscars. It kind of starts 
with Kevin Klein and A Fish Called Wanda and Cher and Olympia Dukakis for Moonstruck and goes on to include Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, Mercedes Rule and The Fisher King, Marissa Tomai, of course, and My Cousin Vinny, an all-time great Oscar win, Mira Sorvino and Mighty Aphrodite, and there are a few others in there. And I think Kathleen Turner in Serial Mom fits perfectly with that roster and that time period that the Oscars find themselves in. I also think the other hot streak that's interesting here is Kathleen Turner herself. I mean, starting in Body Heat, she has this incredible kind of 15-year run of wonderful performances, many of them being box office hits. Um, She earned an Oscar nomination for one of those comedies in that same time period that we're talking about, Peggy Sue Got Married. And then, of course, also, you know, she's in Romancing the Stone and War of the Roses and a lot of movies that set the groundwork for Serial Mom, which I think is maybe her finest performance of them all, the way that she's essentially doing a dual performance as this prim, perfect, suburban housewife, but then she has this heel turn, and you can see it in her eyes, you can see it all over her body as this murderous, uh, you know, middle-class woman who basically slaughters anyone who comes across her family or violates the norms of suburbia. It's just this blistering performance in this pitch-perfect comedy, and she would absolutely be my choice to not only be nominated but win the Oscar that year. That year it was Jessica Lange. She won for Blue Sky, a movie that I know we all clearly remember so vividly. But it's also kind of a middling lineup altogether. You have... Um, Miranda Richardson and Tom and Viv. You have Jodie Foster and Nell, one of the weirdest performances ever committed to film. Winona Ryder and Little Women and Susan Sarandon and The Client. Honestly, you can give Kathleen Turner any one of their spots and we'd still be celebrating that nomination today. I think uh, the great Mac Jacobs just gagged the girls a bit. I think it's a really I I love the thoroughness of Matt's okay, so Kathleen Turner. Well, <laughs> the thorough, I mean... Matt just gave a great argument, almost as if he's one of the best in the business. Um, almost, in terms almost of, you as know, if. Uh, yeah. discussing film and cinema. Yeah. Um, I love that answer, Matthew. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Um, okay, so I'm going to say this is probably maybe our single most discussed Oscar race or actress Oscar for '94. We talk about it all the fucking that time. we yeah, ever yeah. talk about on this show. We talk about it all the time, and I yeah. don't think. To the point where people think we hate Jessica Lange. We don't hate Jessica. I don't hate Jessica Lange. We don't hate Jessica Lange. This is a weird Oscar win. (laughs) This is a weird Oscar win for Blue Sky. I love Jessica Lange. Blue Sky sucks. She's not good (laughs) in that movie. Yeah. (laughs) Let it go. I mean, and I don't think we've ever mentioned Kathleen Turner for this. Kathleen Turner is such an interesting choice Mm -hmm. just as a snub B, too, because her career, I mean, She's only ever had Kathleen one Turner. nomination, which is I crazy. Know. Which is Peggy Sue got married, and it's like, um, yeah, people so vehemently kind of hated her after Body Heat, a movie that she totally could have been nominated for. She's tremendous in it, yeah. Uh, to the point where I'm, I always have to remind myself she's not nominated for it. But uh, I love yeah. this choice. Also, well, and what it does is it puts into the historical record an acting nomination for a John Waters movie, which would be awesome. Uh, so awesome that uh, it's a perfect segue to what? my next pick. What? 
Could you turn that racket down? I'm trying to iron in here. Uh, listen. This is, okay, maybe, you know, people like, or examples of, you know, filmographies like John Waters are a great antidote to say people who take the Oscars too seriously sure. in either direction of sure. saying that they're shit or saying that they're everything. Yeah. You know, they don't encompass all of everything, but there have been times I feel like there, you know, while he is counterculture, the least counterculture of those movies, so this is uh, definitely, uh, you know, on the fringes, but sure. received the most mainstream acceptance that he ever would. My bid is looking at the Best Supporting Actor race of 1988, and I say one of the biggest snubs of all time is Divine for Hairspray. This is a great Listen. choice. Yeah. Is my heart truly wanting to put Divine and Best Actor for Female Trouble? Female Trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw that entry on your long list. <laughs> I saw it hanging out there. Yeah, that. I mean, that would have been so far outside of the realm of possibility that our listeners would have destroyed all credibility for me whatsoever. <laughs> but I mean, Divine and Hairspray. Hairspray, obviously, with the musical, became you know something incredibly mainstream. And I think actually ahead of the curve of uh, conversations we would be having in mainstream entertainment. Um, but, you know, Hairspray is famous in his filmography of being the one that got mainstream attention. Yes. And for the partnership between John Waters and Divine, you know, Edna Turnblad is a now incredibly iconic performance and probably, mm. you know, passive and uh you know ardent fans of john waters would probably say that edna turnblad is one of the most iconic john waters characters most iconic divine performances yes and you know divine is so obviously incredibly funny and you know i think Things like the documentary I Am Divine have done a lot to yeah. recontextualize his career in terms of the type of characters he was trying to play, the type of woman he was trying to portray. And that there is actual, while it's all subversive and it's all in the vein of comedy and body comedy, sometimes gross out comedy, there yeah. is a vein of emotion in there. And, yeah. you know, it's a nod to, you know, 50s melodramas. It's, you know, it's an incredibly intelligent performer. And, uh, yeah, I had to put Divine on my list. I love this pick. It's a really good pick. It's it's out of mainstream, which is interesting because the hairspray is the you know was was such a mainstream leap for John Waters. But it's out of sort of the Oscar realm, and yet it makes complete and perfect sense, and would have been a great addition to this. Oscar had nominated drag performances before. It may have been from like Alec Guinness, but you know, right, right. Speaking of Alec Guinness. Yeah, exactly. And also speaking of, uh, Matt was very smart to point out all of the run of comedy nominations, and this is the year that Kevin Klein wins for A Fish Called Wanda. Yep. Uh, Alec Guinness is nominated for Little Dorrit. Did I watch all six did hours you? of Little Dorrit? I absolutely did not, but I did okay. watch all of Alec Guinness's scenes for this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Martin Landau and Tucker, The Man in His Dream, River Phoenix, uh, the aforementioned River Phoenix on Running on Empty, and Dean Stockwell for Married to the Mob. I mean, this I, I don't necessarily think is a bad lineup. 
it's my not. inclination though however is to boot martin landau for tucker the man in his dream it's between you know him being in woody allen movies and eventually winning for ed wood i right. don't think anything is lost for martin landau's nomination his you know legacy removing this nomination i do think what is I was the nature really of surprised by tucker the man in his dream and that i really liked it is that another coppola movie it is speaking of peggy sue got married it it the movie looks fucking incredible and what's the nature of his role in that movie who does he play he's like tucker's the 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 like right hand man basically i forget what role he actually plays in the business of it all but um i i mean i love martin landau but you know this can be my thing where, you know, uh, we talked a lot the last episode of people being like, the Oscars aren't cool enough to do it. This is can be my bid for that. Sure. Okay. That's good. It's a good pick. Okay. Maxwell Leather Demon Luck Hand Dive. I came down like water for the age of so long. With Uh, next up, I am going to go to 1998, into the crafts categories of 1998, and best makeup uh, for this one. This is another one where I'm like, how did this not get nominated? Somewhat similar to, it's sort of the inverse of The Cell. The Cell was nominated for makeup and somehow didn't end up in costumes. In 1998, Velvet Goldmine was nominated for costumes, Sandy Powell's fantastic costumes. Somehow wasn't nominated for makeup. I know this was back in the era where there were only three nominees for makeup every year, and Mm -hmm. yet even still, if... And no, and hairstyling on top of it. That is right. Yeah, that wasn't until very, very late. So Hair and Makeup in Velvet Goldmine was by Peter King, and it's... If you've nominated it for costumes, you've seen it. So I know it's different branches. But like the makeup in this movie is so much a part of this the success of this movie. You know what I mean? Like so much mm-hmm. of of Velvet Goldmine is the aesthetics of it sort of bringing you into this place and time that all, that existed but also feels like it existed in a dream space and all of the Costumes and makeup sort of go hand in hand with each other. Although it's more than just sort of like throwing a handful of glitter onto you and McGregor. You know what I mean? It's so much more than like painting Jonathan Rhys Meyer's eye. And it's, you know, through all of these different characters down to like the the sort of wannabe nature of Christian Bale's character and the way he wears his makeup, the uh, sort of tragic striver quality to Tony Collette during her scenes in the 70s where she very desperately wants to be part of this scene and she's overdoing it a little bit, right? Uh, uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyers' character, is he wearing the makeup or is the makeup wearing him at some point? Like, so much of, of the makeup tells a story in that movie. And it's just... It's one of my favorite movies. I I will... It's... I might not say it's Todd Haynes' best movie, but it's easily, I think, my favorite Todd Haynes movie. It's the one that that sort of I hold in my heart the most. And it should have been nominated. So the other nominees that year, again, only three. They were all Best Picture nominees. It was Elizabeth, and it was Saving Private Ryan, and Shakespeare in Love. So, what to do, what to do, what to do. Saving Private Ryan 
being a war movie and being sort of, again, a lot of what succeeds about Saving Private Ryan is the in the muck of it all, right? And I think the makeup does a, does a big job of helping get you there. I like Elizabeth and I like Shakespeare in Love. I do feel like, do we need both movies about Queen Elizabeth <laughs> to be nominated <laughs> for Best Makeup in the same year? Um, well, I mean, I think it puts them uniquely at odds with each other because the makeup of both of the renderings of Queen Elizabeth in the movie are really kind of the selling point for right. the ma- I mean, did they give like Jeffrey Rush a fake nose in Shakespeare in Love or something? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Um it's not like wig heavy, but I do think it kind of puts it in a direct battle of, well, who has the better Queen Elizabeth? And I do feel like while Judy Dench looks incredible in Shakespeare in Love and the way that they transform her. Yeah. The especially final Elizabeth makeup in yeah. Elizabeth is a gag. We it are is, we yeah. are aligned on this one. Again, I, I'm not a Shakespeare in Love hater by any means. I'm also no. not a Saving Private Ryan hater. I reject the 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 uh binary of you have to choose either Saving Private Ryan or or Shakespeare in Love. I think they're both great movies. Um Shakespeare yeah, you in Love that binary on me and I'm like, well I'm voting for the thin red line. Fuck you. <laughs> um you can't I do tell feel me like what to do Shakespeare in Love Shakespeare in Love had plenty of nominations that year and had plenty of wins and it won't miss this one. So I am uh I'm house down bootsing uh Shakespeare in Love, surprisingly enough, off of this list. I thought Elizabeth won. Oh, did it? Wait, now I... Yes! I didn't, sorry, hold on. I didn't mark it down, and I thought it was... Because I think I was, that's Elizabeth's only win. Yeah, you're probably right. Yes, of course, Elizabeth did win. Okay, so I am uh, uh, keeping Elizabeth, and I'm I'm booting Shakespeare in Love. Sorry Shakespeare to, in Love will have to live with its 12 other nominations. Sorry to this man who is actually Jen, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in drag, yes. Um... <laughs> All right, who do you have next? Here! We're going further back, back into the 80s, the early 80s, uh, back when another category was only three nominees. We're talking about Best Visual Effects for 1982. Yeah. Listen, I am a huge advocate for the Academy needs to nominate more gross shit. Yeah. Like, especially, this is, I think, where, you know, I think people want, like, acting nominations, Best Picture nominations for horror movies and for genre movies. And this is where, I mean, I think the Academy really does have a lacking of recognizing some of those movies, though this category itself will uh, make me seem like I'm talking out of my ass. Uh, <laughs> I would throw in four Best Visual Effects in 1982, Ray Arbogast's work for The Thing. John yes. Carpenter's the thing some so of the good. most notoriously gross visual effects of all yep. time and yep you know you could have a real question of is some of that makeup is it visual effects where it is where does it lie but uh i'm just going to say for visual effects for this movie uh, the creature effects that happen some of the biggest shocks in i think movie history and some yes. of the like you know biggest jumps and screams and 
really innovative work happening in that movie that it's like you don't just uh, nominate it for its narrative effect, but you also nominate it for a real sense of innovation that would be yeah. happening in creature effects moving forward from that movie. Um, the scene and, like, and the, the thing. I mean, the movie fucking out aliens alien. Like, yeah. It, it, yeah. Incredible. The scene in The Thing where Richard Dysart, uh, uh, Leland from L.A. Law himself, <laughs> takes the paddles to the guy's chest to revive him, and then the guy's chest opens up like a jaw of, of with giant teeth <laughs> and chomps his arms off, is the wild... I, I jumped out of my seat watching that. The movie's like, that 40 was... years old, and those scenes land every single time, no matter who watches it. Like... Have you seen the clip going around this week from uh, 911 Lone Star with uh Oh, yeah, Rob it's like the, they try to do chest compressions on a frozen man. First of all, cracks right we through gotta watch chest. 911. We gotta watch these 911 shows, because <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> apparently. And apparently that's like just like what's going on on that show. That's just what the they do on that show. But that's what it reminded me of. It's just like, oh God, it's like that scene in The Thing with Richard Dysart. Um, yeah, and like the thing where, the, the thing, the moment where they're all getting the blood tested and they're all on the bench. Yeah, and, I mean, a real... Uh, I feel like that movie has a nomination somewhere, but also, uh, I mean, you're advocating right there for best editing because that scene is so yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's a phenomenal uh, movie. It's easily yeah. my favorite Carpenter movie. It's so good. I, love I, it so I think much. I would probably agree. Because yeah. um, I think even the original Halloween, which is, you know... And I love the original movies, Halloween. If I'm, if I'm being yeah. honest, like, there's some crunchy stuff about it. Like, and some, like, crunchy performances. But, as much like, as I love the Halloween, is the thing is even Essentially flawless. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the nominees that year, E.T. wins... Then uh, Blade Runner and Poltergeist are the other nominees. Do I feel like my actual boot makes me feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I want more like horror and genre stuff sure. at play here? Yes, but I do have to boot Poltergeist. Poltergeist, I think, is of these nominees the one that ages the least. Yes, you could make an argument about E.T. that since they have done digital trickery to make et look better however there's a lot of interesting practical effects that happen in that oh movie yeah i mean like God, some yeah. of the most uh, iconic practical effects the like yeah. bike stuff you know yeah no it's it's a lineup that i think in general holds up really well and that all three of those movies are still remembered today and are still right. incredibly watchable today even i i don't disagree with you on poltergeist even though i think there are some visual effects in poltergeist that i think are really good the guy although ripping the, off his own face yes the one i think where it's joe beth williams sort of goes in between the walls and into whatever realm and it's this like glowy light realm or whatever that feels very 80s and very sort of like you know yeah um uh, yeah so i i i don't disagree with you certainly I think E.T. and Blade Runner are very hard to be like, well, we're going to just get rid of those. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to the next? I'm really excited to move on to this next one. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. 
this was definitely one where, you know, we announced this project and I was like, okay, this was maybe like the first name that I wrote down. <laughs> this is, down. this was on both of our very long lists and we yeah. had to negotiate who would talk about this one. Yeah. So I won in this case. I'm talking about Best Actress 1989. Um, somehow I'm still mystified. You know what I mean? This is again, one of those ones where it's just like, how did this one possibly miss? I'm talking about Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally, a movie I watch at least once a year. Uh, holds up like gangbusters, written by Nora Ephron, directed by Rob Reiner, played impeccably by Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal in the title roles. Um, Meg Ryan in particular has never been nominated for an Oscar, was the moment in 1989. Like, this was a hugely popular movie. Everybody was talking about it. It was a screenplay nominee, and deservedly so. And yet, somehow, uh, Meg Ryan was a Golden Globe nominee, was, you know, won an American Comedy Award. I don't know what more you want. Um, somehow misses out on an Oscar nomination for a film of performance that kind of has it all, right? She's relatable and she's sweet and she has, you know, a scene where she's crying for comedic effect and she has a scene where she's crying for dramatic effect and she has this, you know, unbelievably clip-worthy scene where she's, you know, faking an orgasm at Katz's Deli and she's, you know, singing Surrey with a fringe on top at the sharper image. In and front of Ira! In front of Ira! <laughs> <laughs> it's she's just she does it all in this movie she's perfect she's just an absolutely perfect performance uh exactly what you know what nora efron and rob reiner were going for and needed the chemistry with billy crystal is perfect and it's a flawless performance and it is absolutely the one much more so, and God knows I know, love Michelle Pfeiffer and the Fabulous Baker Boys, but like none of the nominees in 1989 for Best Actress hold a candle to the longevity or the impact that Meg Ryan has in When Harry Met Sally. So I would even argue the impact over a genre, because while it very much is playing on, you know, elements of, uh, you know, 1940s and 1950s romantic comedies, I feel yeah. like it's also the definitive uh, lead female uh, performance moving forward for like the next 20 decades you know they're all kind of standing in the shadow of meg ryan in this movie yeah. yes um, i think that's right in terms of what they're what those performances are trying to achieve she set the romantic comedy standard for yeah like you said the next 20 years so um so jessica tandy won for driving miss daisy that year michelle pfeiffer is nominated for the fabulous baker boys your other nominees are isabella johnny for camille claudel pauline collins for shirley valentine a movie that i keep meaning to watch and i keep not having the time to watch we it. know full well that we will like that movie <laughs> i'm sure i will that seems yeah. like a like a sweetheart sweetheart kind of a movie talking about uh, uh brenda blethin right a little bit like that mm -hmm. that i feel like that's the vibe there um and Jessica Lang from Music Box. So here's where I'm going to admit that you are maybe going to have to bail me out here because I have still only ever seen two of these movies. I've only ever seen Driving Miss Daisy and the Fabulous Baker Boys. You did a lot more homework for this project. In well, terms because of I thought movies. I was going to win and get this one. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, well, I guess maybe that should have come into play in terms of who got this one. Um, you have to boot Jessica. I'm so, I mean, lis uh, listeners, we're not pleading our case well here and saying we don't like Jessica Lang. You have to boot Jessica Lang. I mean, it's... Do I? 
you do I watched that movie and yeah. Like also <laughs> when that movie came out, like I read reviews for that movie because I was like, this is just like almost made for TV movie type of stuff. And like I don't think there's anything super remarkable that she's Music doing Box, in that Jessica Lang plays a lawyer who is defending Armin Müllerstahl, who's a Nazi, who's a former Nazi living in the United yes. States. Yes. And the titular music box is a piece of evidence that proves it yeah she like it's a music box that like you know reveals photos that proves spoiler alert to a movie that like you can't really get a hold of that easily uh support your local libraries um <laughs> i watched it from the library. especially now that netflix discs are going away support your local libraries bitch seriously mm, um yeah. the music box reveals photos that yes he is indeed uh a war criminal right the reviews for that movie at the time, several, called yeah. her, called that movie out for existing purely to get her an Oscar nomination. And yeah. even so, I wouldn't have, I mean, maybe at the time it was different, but like, it's not my instant reaction to that movie because she doesn't really do much. Like, It's her like fourth nomination of the 80s, right? Because she's nominated for Tootsie and Francis and Sweet Dreams. Sweet Dreams and Music Box. It's just those four. I think there's another one, but I don't know what it is. She doesn't get the Crimes of the Heart nomination. Sissy Spacek gets the Crimes of the Heart nomination. And so Um, many of these just feel like, even though she's an Oscar winner for what is a good performance, it, it feels like they're constantly making up for not giving it to her for francis which like right i don't understand these people that think that she's better in francis than she is oh we did Meryl forget one Sophie's choice. she's nominated for country the year that sally field wins for places wow in the heart. how could we forget the motion picture that definitely exists you can definitely easily get your hands on country we really aren't beating the we hate jessica lang accusations with this like we we, we truly I like jessica don't lang. i just maybe don't like her oscar nominations it's it's a weird series of Oscar nominations of movies that don't exist. I, I did bet watch I would like Sweet Dreams though. I caught Sweet Dreams on movie. HBO on. on like a weekday afternoon one time and I watched it and she plays Patsy Cline and she's it's I'll probably like that. It's a it's it's a music biopic with the same pitfalls and and whatever as all the music biopics. But um yeah. So anyway, my inclination because I hadn't seen Music Box was to bump Lovely Jessica Tandy for Driving Miss Daisy, which is a bad movie that probably shouldn't have any Oscar nominations. <laughs> and we have full respect to Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman, despite everything else that's going on. That's the thing. Um, but perhaps I think in this case, I will defer to your judgment and I will sight unseen boot Jessica Lang from Music Boss. Although now everything you're telling me about this is like, maybe I should watch Music Box. <laughs> no. You're going to waste two and a half hours of your life. Two and a half? Okay, I'm not going to It's like 2.15. I I watched it. Oh, I, it boy. felt very long. Okay. For what it was. <laughs> We're going to find out it's like 92 minutes and Chris is like, it was four hours hold long. On. It was so hold on. <laughs> we can't leave this hanging. Okay. All right. Um, I almost I, called it a hanging Chad. Remember hanging Chads? Say, remember the nineties? Uh, or no, I guess that would be two thousand. But still, two hours, two and four hours minutes. and four minutes. Yeah, I stand okay. corrected, but it okay. does not feel two hours. Who directed that? Anybody? Costa Gavras. Costa Gavras, sure. Uh, who got a nomination also in the eighties for Sissy Spacek for Missing, a better movie? Wait, written by Joe Westerhaus? Okay, 
uh, okay, it erotic nineties. Feel like a written by Joe Esterhaus movie. It's not an erotic nineties uh, offshoot. Is that no, is that or not? No. Even though I guess it was eighty nine. Okay, all right. So I'm going to defer to you. I will boot Jessica Lang from Music Box. I swear to God, I don't hate Jessica Lang. Don't send me letters. Love Jessica Lang. Don't love her Oscar nominations. Okay, who do you have next? You are taking us into the year two thousand, I believe. <laughs> Uh, the year 2000, a hotly contended uh, Best Director lineup for 2000. Um, double Soderbergh nominations, famously. Yeah. Um, I, however, am talking about a movie that was a critical favorite, led, um, you know, the kind of support for this movie was led purely by critics and it is somewhat tragic because we're talking about a director who would have passed away after this movie and that is edward yang for yi yi um with only a few films that i have seen i could probably call among my favorite directors this movie is just kind of a somewhat slice of life a year in the life of a family in taipei Mm-hmm. that, you know, goes through their day-to-day lives, small tragedies um, in a way that is very patient and very ultimately moving. I don't know how you can get through what I will call and not spoil for people who haven't seen it, the final monologue of this movie and not completely crumble to either ash or a puddle. Um Yi Yi is an absolute fucking masterpiece. I would also point people to who have four hours out of their day free. Uh, Yi Yi is three hours, but um, yeah. a brighter summer day, which was before that movie, but you know because of its length, uh, kind of buried for a while. Um, Yi Yi was you know the same year. It kind of got like in you know simple conversations uh lumped against crouching tiger which had right. you know a f- the distribution of sony classics behind it that movie goes on to make a hundred billion dollars and you know yeah. critics and its distributor had to fight for every single dollar that yee yee made i will say a- critics came through for yee yee though during the the critics award season i do remember it winning yes. national society of film critics for best film it won Foreign language film at both New York and L.A. And it won Cannes for Best Director, I believe, yes, right? Yes, it did. Yeah. It did. So um, I remember it being, like, for, I, this is not a movie that I have seen, but I remember being aware of the 2000 Oscar race, that it was a movie that, like, was on the fringes as, like, critics' choice kind of a thing. I know uh, endorsing a three-hour movie to you is, like, not going to happen <laughs> in your life right now, Joe, but I, I want it to promise be able to happen. you that you, yeah. you will respond to this movie. Um it, it's it's just a fucking masterpiece. And the other thing about like I why I was so adamant including it in this list is like it almost feels like it happened at a, the wrong time at the for the Oscars for this movie because it does very sure. much feel like the type of critical groundswell that has gotten movies like Drive My Car Oscar nominations. You know sure. that you know it brings a lot of noteworthy attention um, that. Uh, wasn't happening as much uh, at this time for the Oscars history. Sure. Yeah. So 
Nominees are Soderbergh wins for Traffic, winning yes. for, I would argue, the wrong nomination. He's also sure. nominated for Aaron Brockovich. You see why they would give an Oscar to the directing for Traffic instead of Aaron Brockovich. Yes, but you do. I think, you know, yeah. time has changed that. Uh, Stephen Daltrey for Billy Elliot is the lone director nominee. Billy! And then you have Ang Lee for Crouching Tiger and Ridley Scott for Gladiator. I really don't think that this is going to surprise anyone, knowing that I uh, am openly a non-fan of Gladiator, but I'm going to boot Ridley Scott. You know, it doesn't change anything for Ridley Scott. He still no. doesn't have. He still doesn't an have Oscar, an Oscar. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. and it it might sound absurd because like Ridley Scott not getting that nomination was never not was never going right. to happen. But um, that's yeah, why we're doing our boot. project. He's my yeah. boot. So Chris says Gladiator uh, for his choice for boot for this category, yes. Two movies that couldn't be more different, Yee Yee and Gladiator, except they're both three hours long. Yeah. You don't have to scream it, you know. Um, speaking of two movies that couldn't be more different, I'm going to, at the risk of cultural whiplash, move us from Yee Yee to my choice for the next great snub, which is, uh, in 2009, best documentary feature, I am going to nominate the, uh, unjustly snubbed Every Little Step for best documentary feature. I, uh... I love this movie. It's directed by Adam Deldeo and James D. Stern. It is about the late 2000s revival, Broadway revival of a chorus line and essentially casting the, the revival for a chorus line. And it sort of goes through the entire process. And in that process, mirrors the story of a chorus line, right? Where everybody in a chorus line wants to get cast in this Broadway show. They are, you know, um, in their own little ways, <laughs> d- degrees of, you know, desperate to, to get cast in this thing. You get the commentary from the original cast. You get archive footage of Michael Bennett talking about the, you know, the movie with his original cast. And then you get the original cast nowadays, some of whom are helping cast this new version by Oakley, uh, telling the dancers to eat nails uh, at one point is always going to to stick with me. You gotta you gotta dig in. You gotta eat nails, um, and then the new sort of cast and perspective cast and and you know will they get will they get the roles or not? Just uh, the so many uh, moments. Uh, Charlotte Amboise is is in this movie and Deirdre Goodwin and. Uh, Jason Tam's uh, audition for, I think his character is Paul, um, that brings the casting directors to tears is something I will watch just on its own uh, many, many times. <laughs> Jason Tam, who was a One Life to Live kid um, and at the time, like at that time. Um, and I was working at ABC at that time. So uh, I was very proud of him for that. Um, there's just a lot of little, really great small moments in this. Deirdre Goodwin finding out that she got cast in the role while standing on the corner of 45th Street and 8th Avenue, which is Deirdre where Goodwin I went on a flip phone.mp4. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, the, I think it's a very 
deceptively smart movie about telling the story about why theater people work in the theater and why these actors work in this punishing and and in many ways impossible realm of the the chances for you know true success and top line success are so small and then you watch that movie and you know you ask me why i give so much leeway to theater people in my life and in and, 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 and the culture <laughs> and i watch a movie like every little step and it's just like how do i not just absolutely fall in love with all these people and the way that their, you know, their their dreams and ambitions and and while at the same time I can watch fucking Tice Diorio, who was a judge on So You Think You Can Dance at the time, who annoyed the shit out of me, get fucking hoisted by his own petard in this movie and sort of you know <laughs> brought down to earth and he's so cocky in this thing and he's you know uh, and then <laughs> watching how much he fucking wants it just like everybody else and he's not too cool for this and anyway, um. It's a tremendous movie, and I, I I get where this is, and it was seen at the time, I imagine, as, like, slight, you know what I mean? It's a movie about a Broadway show, and it's not about, you know, migrants in Mexico, which was, uh, which was Which Way Home, and it wasn't about the Pentagon Papers, which was another movie. Not about and an epidemic. It's not about uh, environmental uh, uh, crises like The Cove, right? Political it's not scandals. about uh Yeah. So... It's, I get where like uh, oftentimes best documentary feature comes down to most important <laughs> issues sometimes, and every little step isn't going to be able to compete in that way. But it is absolutely a a really smart, deceptively smart movie about what it's about, and it's also deeply entertaining. And I don't know, are you are you as as I can't imagine you're as enamored as I am of this movie, but like have you seen this? What do you think of every little step? You just want to uh open wounds of my trauma. Um uh, <laughs> Okay, so I was in college. I was in college for theater when this movie came out. Seeing this movie with a crowd full of theater people is a 4DX experience. Um the I think <laughs> the sequence that constantly sticks out in my mind, aside from Deirdre Goodwin on a flip phone. Uh-huh. Um uh Deirdre Goodwin, great star of uh musicals. She has every Chicago. Step. She has Chicago, she has Magic Mike XXL. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um the 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 audition sequence when they have everyone doing at the ballet when Ugh. Everyone is missing that fucking giant yes. note, and yep. it's so yep. painful when yep. you're watching it. And you're watching it if you were like me, watching it with a crowd of theater people. It was yep. like a sporting <laughs> event where it's people were so just like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And then when that one actress hits it fucking perfectly, like yep. everyone was leaping out of their fucking oh my seats. God. It's oh. that is a great sequence. Yeah. Um, Oscar nomination just for that sequence. Um, yeah, yeah. I love that you put this on here. I love how you speak about this movie. Thank you. Um, I truly do love it. And I will probably watch it within the next week because I can't talk about it without <laughs> wanting to go put it on. Um, so in terms of what I boot, though. So 2009 Best Documentary. I definitely saw all of these movies. And trying to remember all of them is sometimes a little challenge. Sometimes when I sort of like, you know plow through and watch all the Oscar nominees, sometimes the stickiness becomes an issue. The Cove wins. The Cove is about um, 
dolphin slaughter in a way that like is uh Certainly memorable. Like that's the one I'm not going to forget. That they one. They sneak won. all those cameras in, and they have the cameras looking like they're rocks, so that they can yeah. get footage of this slaughter. Happening. This is why uh, Fisher Stevens, uh, Hugo on Succession, has an Oscar. He is he is one of the Oscar winners for The Cove. Um, that stays. I really liked uh, the most dangerous man in America, Daniel Ellsberg, and the Pentagon Papers. That was sort of the the, the story that ultimately is told. Uh, in the post, um, and uh, I, I I enjoy a good you know movie that tells me a little bit of something about history. You know what I mean? I am that kind of you know basic documentary viewer. Burma VJ is very good. It's about uh, the uh, political revolution in Burma. Um, Which way home is essentially about it's about uh, migrants in Mexico, sort of hitching a train towards mm-hmm. the border in the same way that like it, like Sin Nombre was that same year, right? I don't Carrie remember. Fukunaga's movie Sin Nombre, which like is very thematically similar. Obviously that's a fictional film. Um I'm booting Food Inc. I Food Inc's an important movie. It had its heart in the right place. I at some point I was like, all right, Food Inc, that's enough. I get it. Everything's bad and everything's terrible. And you know there was a little bit of I think I was maybe weary of Popul- watching I mean, it's Pudding. a populist documentary. I would say, sure. you know, it makes sense when some of those movies get in there, but are they the most artfully made? Yeah. Not always. Yeah. Certainly, I'm never going to watch Food Inc. again. I will watch every little step 50 <laughs> more times before I die. So, um, yes. Uh, easy call for me. Every little step documentary nominee now in my heart. What do you have next? Don't you see I'd be turning my back on everything I've ever known? Ron, isn't it enough that we love each other? No, Carrie. It isn't. It isn't enough for either of us. I have, uh, I think, our oldest uh, yeah. pick so far. It will yes. not be our oldest pick in the entire month. All right. But uh, this is one I feel very strongly about. Uh, not only just as a fan, but I just don't understand how you could put a human being in front of this movie (laughs) and not have them be like, well, that movie looks fucking incredible. Just the look of that movie is one of the greatest things I have ever seen. Uh, We're talking about best cinematography, brackets color. Hello! (laughs) We're going back to when they were broken up between black and white movies and color movies uh, for 1955. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Russell Meddy's work in All That Heaven Allows, the Douglas Sirk melodrama that uh, exists very much in my heart. It uh, follows uh, a woman who is widowed and very ingrained in her uh, suburban life. She has two children who are growing up themselves into adulthood, and she uh, falls in love with a much younger man played by Rock Hudson. This is a movie that received no Oscar nominations. It is now a classic. It is uh, my favorite Douglas Sirk movie. Obviously inspired things like uh, Todd Haynes's Far From Heaven. Um, but I think it also is a movie that has 
a lot of resonance for a lot of different reasons today. I watch it and it's just like you see the crushing uh, heterosexuality and conformity <laughs> of nuclear units in the suburbs, etc. Sure, sure. And this is, it's not just that she is in love with a younger man. It's that, you know, it's he's kind of a part of like a group of not weirdos, but like, beatniks you know people who are somewhat on the fringes people who aren't ingrained in family life you know so he represents just a completely different way of life that those other people don't accept much less that like well this is the 1950s how could you how could you be with this man who's so much younger than you and the thing about the cinematography in that movie, it's obviously these <laughs> very, if you see any still from the movie, it's these very saturated right. colors and right. it's these, this very stark imagery and like casting blue over them. It's like the, uh, the essential, the, the ur text of bisexual lighting at, <laughs> at moments. Um, but the visuals of this movie, the lighting of this movie, the, you know, image framing of this movie all underscores everything that is happening emotionally in the text, you know, uh, and a lot of the things that characters either don't have the language to say, they don't understand about themselves, specifically the protagonist, but also, like, didn't have language at the time to say, you know, but it is so every image of this movie is so incredibly emotional i think the one that stands out for a lot of people is there's this whole thread on she doesn't want a tv she doesn't want a tv and her kids are like but you should get a tv it's great to consume and she they give her a tv (laughs) and you she sees her reflection in the tv and it's like a reflection of the life that everybody wants her to have yeah and she just looks so sad in that reflection um yeah yeah, best cinematography, all that heaven allows. If you've seen the movie, you're not going to argue with me. No, no. But who goes? Who gets? Who goes? The, who gets is the chop? An interesting yeah. question. Um, to catch a thief wins. Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, incredible looking movie. You can't argue with the win. Guys and Dolls is nominated. Love is a many splendored thing. Uh, a man called Peter. And Oklahoma. Yes. These are, you know, it's a lot of Technicolor, the type of thing you see with, you know, studio filmmaking in Technicolor at the time. I mean, Guys and Dolls, I was tempted to boot because, like, even for a a mid-century musical, like, I don't really think of the... The images are just kind of basic, but it's pretty. The one I'm gonna boot is Love is a Many Splendored Thing, not just because uh, Jennifer Jones is playing Yellowface, but, like, it also kind of doesn't do what All That Heaven Allows, which is Mm -hmm. also this melodrama romance, and, like, Mm -hmm. All That Heaven Allows blows it out of the water in every regard in terms of the imagery reflecting the emotion of it. Yeah. So that's my boot. I mean, it's it's highly supportable. I've never seen Love is a Many Splendored Thing, but I uh, I believe you. I trust you. I mean, All right. not good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now sit back, stay in your seats, and enjoy the Star Lasso Experience. 
Next up is me from one uh, of our with our most recent. I was going to say from one watched. of our uh, least recent ones to our most recent uh, entry on the list. This is just from this past year. I I tended to stray from the most recent years because obviously historical context uh, matters a lot. But this is one where I'm not going to feel any differently about this in 10 years. This to me was the most baffling snub of the 2022 Oscar season. Uh, this movie was blanked entirely, so we will be doing an episode on it at some point, and I will rave about it anew. But I'm just going to say right now, it's absolutely insane that Best Sound did not have at least a nomination for the team from Nope, because that movie is not only impeccable on a sound level, but depends so heavily on the sound for so many elements. Uh, Johnny Byrne and Jose Antonio Garcia are the sound designers for this movie. Um, This movie is kind of sound design the movie and like it has so many other uh, attributes to it i mean it's also it's, nope is so hard because you could have kind of slotted it anywhere as a snub. it's also it's cinematography also cinematography yes, movie 100 100 yes. absolutely it's production design the movie it's like, a movie about cinematography like for god's sake but so watching the movie a second time that i did uh a couple months ago the if only for the scene where the kid hides behind the whatever hides as the monkey is rampaging on the set of the sitcom the sound in that scene where you know exactly what is happening just from sound effects Mm -hmm. in that scene and it's so and you're just terrifying and also gross and also like Um, that scene when people are like i can't do scary movies can i do nope i'm like nope's not no you're fine if you can watch independence day you can watch (laughs) nope and then i'm like oh shit i just set them up for that scene which is so fucking scary but then also the scenes were like you can you know you hear people screaming from the distance and you hear the you know stephen yun's little ranch uh at the distance and the the way that it mixes you know sounds moving from one place to the other and it you know it mixes silence and then um which you know you would think would not be much of an achievement for sound but like uh it's it's such a rich and layered and detailed soundscape in that movie and it contributes so much to the success for what's going on and you know you look at the other nominees last year and it's what sound has become, which is a lot of sound, big sound, right? <laughs> Top Gun, sound. Top Gun, Maverick, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Batman, All Quiet on the Western Front, Elvis. A uh, lot of sound, a lot of sound in all of those things in a lot of different ways. I would value Nope higher than all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, as to what one I'm going to get rid of. You know, I get why all of them were nominated. They all have very prominent sort of like soundscapes to, you know, what they're doing. Uh, I'm certainly not going to get rid of Elvis because I think, you know, the music in that movie is is deployed very well. For as much as I had very little use for Top Gun Maverick, I get that like planes go loud, zoom, 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 you know, whatever. Like, that's fine. Right. I think I'm going to boot All Quiet on the Western Front just because yes. A, that movie had too many nominations. <laughs> B, you know, I can only listen to Bones crunching under the treads of tanks for so long. And 
Um, I get that, like, that's what the movie called for, but, like, I, I can accept that and still not throw it a nomination. I'm bad movie. I, I don't I don't need any more nominations for All Quiet on the Western Front, even though there was it was never not going to get a sound nomination because like the sound nominators love war shit and they love water, so of course Avatar was going to get nominated and of course All Quiet was going to get nominated. Um, so, but yeah, Nope's better than all of them, but in in particular, I'm getting rid of All Quiet on the Western Front. Now let's go back to no, we have it's a Christmas, call. Joe. It's Christmas. Joe, wake up. Wake up! You gotta open your presents. It's Christmas morning. Oh, look, look, look! The Polar Express is back, Joe. How did we land on the Polar Express as the motif for our guests? <laughs> it's gonna change every episode. Yes, so to mention. Okay. The previous episode was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> Today it's the Polar Express. We're gonna find something for the next one. Uh, but the Polar Express is here, and look, they they brought us a guest. All right. Well, t- let's let's uh, let's let's see who the Polar Express has brought us. Hey, Chris and Joe, this is Mitchell Beaupre from Letterboxd, and more importantly, from the After Hours episode of This Had Oscar Buzz. While I'd love to talk extensively about any of the many snubs from that film, we've covered that ground thoroughly, so I'm going to take a moment to shine a light on 1995's neo-noir masterpiece from Carl Franklin, the Denzel Washington starring Devil in a Blue Dress. This P.I. classic didn't receive a single nomination, which is an absolute crime, and I want to give special attention to Don Cheadle's performance as Denzel's right-hand man, Mouse. Mouse is a character who is spoken about in hushed tones with an air of terror for the first half of the movie before we're even introduced to him, and when we do meet him, you immediately can't imagine how the movie existed without him in it. Cheadle crafts a performance equal parts unnerving, empathetic, and soulful. It's a remarkable character, and one that launched him in the early stage of his career to start picking up roles in films from PTA, Steven Soderbergh, and more. That year's nominees for Best Supporting Actor were Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects, James Cromwell in Babe, Ed Harris in Apollo 13, Brad Pitt in 12 Monkeys, and Tim Roth in Rob Roy. Which is honestly, let's be real, a pretty stacked lineup. Pretty good performances there, but I think Cheadle trounces any of them. If I had to strip one of them of the nomination, I'd I'd go ahead and take it from the winner, Spacey. Obviously, kind of an easy move considering, you know, all of the shit that comes with Kevin Spacey having two Oscars and the legacy with that, but... It's also a performance that I think is A, arguably a leading role, and B, got a big boost simply from the major twist ending, leaving everyone thinking about the character's performance as much as they were thinking about Spacey's. Pound for pound, I'd wager he's the weakest of the impressive lineup, so let's go back and take that trophy from him and give it to Cheadle instead. All right, thank you very much. Love you guys. This is beautiful. This is perfect. When we got... Mitchell to do this. I was like, what are they going to pick? And when this was, it was like, of course, this is perfect. I should know. But uh, it's a great pick. It's a great pick. Great analysis of this category. I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of The Usual Suspects still. I'm a big fan of Spacey's performance in The Usual Suspects still. But Mitchell makes a good case for why that's not as impressive as the other one. So I will say, uh, go- well-argued. Well-argued by our friend Mitchell Beaupre, for sure. Um, With the caveat that I haven't seen Rob Roy. I saw it so I would ago. definitely vote Cheadle over all of these people, but of the ballot, 
I maybe just had the light bulb in my head that I would be voting for James Cromwell. I mean, it's a great performance. Cromwell's great. Babe is a great movie. Um, Rob Roy, another Jessica Lange movie. So let's be, let's, let's, you know, be nice. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's great at it. Maybe, maybe. I saw it forever ago. I saw it forever. My mom ago. loves that movie. Rob Roy is like a movie that I, like, the first thought, first thought of that movie is my mom loves that movie. Rob Roy was weirdly sold fairly heavily on Liam Neeson being a hot piece in a kilt. <laughs> Like for I mean, everything else that goes else on in that movie, what else do you need movie? to sell a movie? I mean, that this was also the year of Braveheart, so like it was the other movie with a A list right. leading man in a kilt, but uh, Braveheart um, with a lady. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. So thank you, Mitchell, once again, uh, a fantastic choice, and go see Devil in a Blue Dress. It's a really good movie. Okay, so next Chris, time, you are up next. Go and talk to Sister Cloda. She brought you here, she can get you back again. Sister Cloda, Sister Cloda! Do you know what she says about you? Well, whatever she said, it was true. You said that because you love her! I don't love anyone! Cloda. 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 I feel like every, uh, first of all, have to take back what I said about uh, All That Heaven Allows, because it's not the oldest movie that we have on this episode. Uh, this that this I am is. about to mention is. Though yeah. this one is still not the oldest movie that we will have in this lineup. Yeah. Uh, every, I think every episode in this miniseries, I will be having some type of horny nomination. Um, <laughs> that's, when your I pro- think that's your promise great, to us? <laughs> I mean, kind of. Uh, when I think of horny acting, this is one of the performances that, comes to my brain first and partly because this is such a lurid uh-huh. uh, kind of mousetrap of a movie because when you start this movie it's like okay this is a little boring what am I watching and then it quickly devolves into uh, collective horniness and isolation will drive everyone insane Um we're talking about Best Supporting Actress in 1947. I am talking about the unnominated Kathleen Byron for Black Narcissus. Black Narcissus is a movie that justifiably won two Oscars for art direction and cinematography. Like, uh, there, there is a reason to believe in a religious deity if this movie can win <laughs> Best Cinematography. It's like, it's cinematography, the again, cinematography, the movie. Sure, um, sure. She plays Sister Ruth, who uh, everyone has seen, like, screenshots and gifs of the final scene of the movie. So it's not really a super spoiler. Essentially, you know, in 1947 terms, because they can't necessarily say it explicitly, it's a nunnery in the Himalayas and all of these white nuns go insane, uh, partially because of the, you know, horniness. And... (laughs) Uh, Kathleen Byron uh, credited a lot of her performance to the way that the movie was lit and shot, but there is such a physical minutiae and this uh, look in her eye that is, I think, one of the most haunting performances I have ever seen. Uh, If gay people watch it, it will be absolutely slay queen from her just, like, putting on (laughs) lipstick. It's truly that level of... uh, 
physical arrestedness um, sure. that I I it, it, I love this performance so much to the point where it's just like you see a screenshot of her in the final like fifteen minutes of the movie and it's like yeah, <laughs> it's also great sweaty acting because sure. before you know she you know. Uh, rids herself of her habit uh, when she is in her habit early in the movie, uh, kind of going through her psychosis. Uh, excellent sweaty acting. Fantastic. <laughs> I've never seen this movie. It's been on my list forever. It's got to oh, happen. Lo- you'll think it's boring for the first half hour, <laughs> and then when the movie kicks into gear... Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a Powell and Pressburger movie. Of course it's going to look incredible. And right. That's part of the avenue into the movie for people but like uh one of my favorite third acts in all of movies yeah so So, who who goes oh oh boy uh it's a lot of movies i don't like okay let's hear it (laughs) in this lineup because okay so your winner is celeste home for gentleman's agreement a movie that forgive me i don't think is very good okay Anne revere is also nominated for gentleman's agreement uh, Gloria Graham, nominated for Crossfire. She slays. She's my pick to win. Okay. Ethel Barrymore, parody in case. And then Marjorie Mame for the near unwatchable <laughs> Egg and I. What is the Egg and I about? She plays Ma Kettle. You know, the quintessential, everybody's heard of a Ma and Pa Kettle. Right. right? The Egg and I is a, like... <sighs> It's it, it's Claudette Colbert, her husband decides to uproot their life from the city and go live on a farm. If it sounds like it is a sitcom, it's because it's a, the worst sitcom you've <laughs> ever seen. It is like, you know, it's, a t- it's so, I mean, maybe at the time it wasn't a cliche, but, uh-huh. and it's not even just like by viewing it through modern lenses, this sure. is a movie that sucks. It's like... None of these jokes land. It's just kind of miserable. There's no real justification or signs of love in this marriage that she would stick around with this man who just decides he can uproot their life. And even, I mean, all due respect to Marjorie Maine, it is just like kind of cliche yokelism that I don't understand why it has an Oscar nomination. Right. Yeah. All right. It's a good choice, Stan. I, I, I'm, I'm, I can only sit and and listen and learn because obviously I've not seen <laughs> these movies. But uh, I don't want you to spend your precious time watching <laughs> the Egg and I. Okay, all right, then I won't. Um, I didn't realize Ma and Pa Kettle were like actual like characters and yeah. things. I just assumed that they were like yeah. constructs of whatever. Interesting. I mean, as the movie stands, basically just a construct of like yokel person right right like, right uh, yeah all right cool i just can't seem to get going till later at night you think i want to be late those people deserve a show and you have no idea the hell that i've been through i am wishing there was any way on earth i could get going but i just don't think i'm gonna make it promise me mama when i die have the coffin arrive half an hour late and on the side written in gold letters of the words sorry for the delay um I'm going to zoom us several decades forward in time for our next one. For uh, my pick is 2019 Best Actress. Should have been nominated, but wasn't. We've talked about her before. 
Elizabeth Moss in Her Smell, a performance that knocked me right on my butt. It's so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much. So much, but exactly right. A a performance we'll definitely talk about in the future. I, I am very, very much a person who responds to big performances that are big because the movie requires them to be. And oh, yeah. it's, I think it's a challenge and I think it's, she, she puts her whole, she puts her whole self into this performance. It's, uh, she plays a very, very difficult and, and impossible to deal with rock star, uh, in a band called something. She, she is Becky something. And she is, on drugs and she's also uh a massive narcissist and she is also uh either under the influence of a shaman or wants to project the image that she's under the influence <laughs> of a shaman so much of of Becky in this movie is a performance on a performance on a performance right she is she's throwing in layers and she's trying to keep everybody in her life off balance because that's how she maintains control of a situation and she's you know she's selfish and um and she's inconsiderate of other people but she's also like antagonistic of them like that's the the thing is like does she just not care or is she actively trying to like push everybody in her life away from her and then the movie sort of moves through these these different movements and moments in her life and and towards the end of the movie we see she's gotten clean and she's gotten out of the music business and uh she's able to sort of reflect on everything that's gone on and and then in the final section of the movie she's at this reunion concert and you know, is she going to put herself back into this realm that caused her so much chaos and that brought out so much chaos in her um, for the to see if she can regain this rock star persona, but under more, you know, under less dangerous circumstances this time. And it's like an incredibly it's so tense. The end of like credit to Alex Ross Perry for the tension in that last section of the movie, I, you're, I'm terrified that she's going to regress and relapse in that. And because, and it's because I've grown so attached to her because of this Elizabeth Moss performance, which is so electric and enigmatic and, and visceral and vital. And for she's, all that viscerality and for all the heights that you've described, there's still this baseline of humanity. Uh-huh. She doesn't feel like a character so much as a person. Like, yeah, there's a lot of rigorous skill that goes into not just yeah. having these blow-ups, you know. Right. Becky something is human, yes. too, yeah. in a way that allows her in this final stretch to be a question mark yeah. that is terrifying. For someone who was as big of a fan of Courtney Love through the 90s as I was, um, it's a great it's a great performance. I mean, she's not playing Courtney Love, <laughs> but she's playing someone of that stature, right? Right. Um, I don't love most of the nominees in 2019 for Best Actress. I'm not a I I don't I'm not a hater of Judy. I actually think Judy's a pretty okay movie, and I think Renee Zellweger does a good job. I was I think happy. She's great. I don't love the movie. I was happy that she had the comeback that she got after sort of getting a lot of undeserved shit for a while. On a pure 
performance level, it's not the kind of performance I would give an Oscar to. Um, I think Charlize Theron in Bombshell is a waste of a nomination in a movie that is not good. I love Charlize Theron, but like, no. Um, I don't think Harriet's that good of a movie. And I love Cynthia Erivo, and I'm glad that she's an Oscar nominee. But Double Oscar nominee. Um, well, right, but an Oscar nominee just the ones in acting. Um, so far, Color Purple coming... Uh, or No, wait, she's not in the Color Purple, she's in Wicked, right. Um, well, I, I'd give her better chances if she was in the Color Purple movie. Um, anyway, I don't like Harriet very much. I think her, I like Cynthia Revo a ton, but I wouldn't nominate her. Um, Saoirse, Little Women, yes. Scarlet, Marriage Story, yes. Uh, otherwise, maybe sweep the category clean. So who's the one I get rid of? At the risk of being overly critical towards an actress I love, I already booted Charlize's North Country nomination in last episode. I'm going to boot her from Bombshell for this one, too. Listen, um, listeners, you can't say we hate Jessica Lang. Joe Reed is now on the record. Shut he up. Charlize Theron. Shut up. We just... He wants to take all good things away from okay. her. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> shaking it off. I'm no, shaking no, it off. You've, you, I maybe wouldn't have agreed with you on the North Country situation, but I wholeheartedly agree with you on this. Yeah. Bombshell's a bad movie. It's Bombshell's a bad movie. It's not her fault. She doesn't make it bad. I don't want to go so far as to say it's a non-performance, but like take everything of the transformation away, which the transformation, she still looks like Charlize Theron. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. What, what, what is there? There's not even like a big scene. Like Margot Robbie has like three big scenes in that movie. Yeah. And even Margot Robbie should be nominated for a different movie that year. She should have gotten nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood instead. Um, But that's a different category and a different discussion, and we're not talking about that. But yeah, so, um, yeah, Elizabeth Moss in, Charlize Theron out. So say me. What you got next? Would you tell us the nature of your relationship with Mr. Boz? I had sex with him for about a year and a half. I liked having sex with him. He wasn't afraid of experimenting. I like men like that. Men who give me pleasure. He gave me a lot of pleasure. We're sticking to Best Actress, and I'm still sticking in the horny acting lane. Okay. (laughs) I'm here to talk about one of the most iconic performances of the 1990s, but also personal grudges that I hold against the industry. Sure. We're talking Best Actress, 1992, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Let's do it. I mean, uh, this performance, again, one of the most iconic things of the 90s. I think the treatment that Sharon Stone received for this movie, even though, as we've talked in previous episodes, yes, it's understandable that Sharon Stone is a lot, (laughs) is entirely un. Fair, I think. I mean, we talked recently on this certain type of character and the type of lack of embrace or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, begrudging embrace that it maybe receives or the type of uh, misogyny that it's received with uh, in our episode on The Last Seduction. And I I mean, 
I think Sharon Stone is even better than Linda Fiorentino in that movie. This it, this performance is so incredibly smart, so incredibly uh, inviting. It's like this kind of bear claw of a performance uh, <laughs> to the audience, you know, um, like bear claw with a million dollars sitting at the middle of it. Like, of course, you're going to try to reach for that uh, million dollars. Oh, so you don't mean the donut. You mean the actual bear claw. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I always mean, I'm always... Uh, There's always time for a bear claw. <laughs> yeah, but, like, just an incredibly commanding role, uh, you know, and she makes it look so fucking easy in this movie. Yeah. Um, just the brains of it. Like, even to the thing, uh, but, like, holding a grudge <laughs> uh, against it is this whole idea of how she was treated she's golden globe nominated for it and when they announce her nomination you have as much respectful applause as you have people laughing yeah. at it and there's absolutely nothing to laugh about for a nomination for this performance yeah. it's you know uh part of the reason why the movie a, a huge reason why this movie has the success that it has even you know the contentious relationship she would have had with paul verhoven in the mm-hmm. making of this movie mm-hmm. I mean, you can understand why an ill-fated sequel would happen just because you. she's such a fascinating character, given such a fascinating performance that I think 30 years later still stands the test of time, is still subversive, is still pushing buttons, and, yeah. you know, still doesn't break a sweat, except for when she's having sex. Told no lies, you've told no lies, it's, it's exactly, you're exactly right. All right, who do we boot from this 1992 actress lineup? This is probably the simple, the easiest decision I will make. Uh, Emma Thompson wins for Howard's End. Catherine Deneuve wins for Indochine, which I haven't seen, but didn't need to. I'll get to it. Uh, Mary McDonnell for Passion Fish, a performance we both love, a movie we both love. Indeed. Michelle Pfeiffer in Love Field and Susan for Lorenzo's Oil. My beloved Lorenzo's Oil. You're, I, I do not have the audacity to boot it for you, but like, I didn't. I I don't need to see Indochine. I don't need to rewatch Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer's Love Field nomination is a bad nomination. I know that yeah. that's a movie that hasn't been super available, so a lot of people don't see it. But like, we maybe don't talk about that as one of our worst acting nominations. Okay. The and it's also like it's the same year as Batman Returns. Obviously, because I threw Michelle on here for Age of Innocence, Batman Returns won't be on here. But it just. Not only is it a horrendous movie in a ver- and a very not good performance in it, but it also just kind of reeks of this performer being in this schmaltzy movie that is the type of thing that the Oscar would go for when, like, right next door is something that they're, you know, maybe not, no finger quotes, cool enough mm-hmm. to nominate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love Field is horrible. <laughs> and she's not good in it. So right. that's the easiest boot for me probably will have this whole month. Okay. I want to do the, the trust call and Brandywine. And when all those fucking pigs are coming after me, I want to split out the back. I want to go down to Rotterdam and I want to do that first national. You know something, Luke? If you ride like lightning... You're gonna crash like thunder. We're we're nearing the home stretch here. Okay, so my next one is best cinematography from 2013. 
the uh, egregiously snubbed Sean Bobbitt for The Place Beyond the Pines. So this is another one where I'm going to direct you to one of our old episodes. Episode 146, we talked about The Place Beyond the Pines, Um, Derek C. and Francis' divisive 2013 movie. We talked a lot about the cinematography, how Sean Bobbitt put his health and safety on the line to give (laughs) uh, some of those shots. He had a motorbike crash on his head at one point. Um, He thankfully made it through that okay. That movie looks tremendous. There are are shots uh, sort of tracking down, you know, following a, you know, Ryan Gosling on on a motorbike that are... Uh, tremendous there's a chase scene through suburban streets that looks just absolutely uh gorgeous and and thrilling and it is a tremendously shot movie again go check out our episode on the place beyond the pines you will not regret it uh, we we talk a little we get into some really interesting discussion in that movie i will say not to pat ourselves on the back or anything like that um Fascinating movie. Oh, I, we love Sean Bobbitt. Um, wild that he has only one Oscar nomination to his name. Correct? Uh, was it that same year? Was it um, 12 Years a no. Slave that same year? Uh, well, okay, let me double check. I'm sure we talked about it on the episode, but he's nominated yeah. for Judas and the Black Messiah. Right. He and... wasn't even nominated for 12 Years a Slave that year. Right. Which is shocking. Anyway. Um, but we are we are riding for his less uh, likely, but st- I think even better uh, work in 2013, Place Me on the Pines. So the nominees that year, that was uh, Emmanuel Lebeski finally wins his first Oscar in 2013 for Gravity after, you know, many bites at the apple. And finally, the Academy comes around and gives him the Oscar for Gravity, an Oscar that is... You could say as much for visual effects as it is for cinematography, and um, which is taking nothing away from Lebeski, who I think is one of our most talented <laughs> cinematographers, and I think everybody's sort of come around to that fact. Other nominees are Philippe Lesur for The Grant Master, Bruno Delmanel for Inside Lewin Davis, Faden Papa Michael for Nebraska, and Roger Deakins for Prisoners. This, to me, is an easy call. I think there's a pretty easy call as well. I think even the I movies don't know if we'll that agree, like though. What's that? I don't, don't know agree. if we'll agree on the easy call, but tell me yours. Um I think for even movies that like I wish I liked Inside Lewin Davis as much as everybody likes Lewin Davis, but like the cinematography in that movie is tremendous. Um Prisoners, I think, is fun junk, and Roger Deakins does an incredible job with it. Uh the Grandmaster is another movie that, like, I'm maybe not fully on the wavelength with, with, but, like, it looks tremendous. I think Nebraska is a movie I like maybe a little bit more than some people like, but the cinematography doesn't impress me very much. It's a black and white movie, and I think sometimes black and white movies get overrated in cinematography. Uh, so I'm going to take away the nomination from Feed and Papa Michael for Nebraska. We agree. Yeah, I figured we would. I know and you hate that It's not shot movie. in black and white. Yeah. It's not nominated yeah. there. Period. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. We don't really need to belabor the point, but uh, yeah. All right. What is your next choice? Your last choice for this episode. What's it gonna be? Cause I can't pretend. Don't you want to be more than friends? Only tight and don't let go. Don't let go. You had a right. Listeners, 
Joe Reed. <laughs> Have you ever been gay? Are, are you a homosexual? Do you like the sounds of women singing? Do you like perhaps a torch song by women? Sung by women? Women who slay? Listen, I, I'm talking about probably one of my top five songs ever, sure. period. Sure, sure. Uh, from 1996, best original song, the motion picture, set it off, as sung by En Vogue, Don't Let Go, Love. I think this song was the first music video I ever saw on VH1. Uh-huh. Uh, couldn't be a more simple, uh, music video, but it's, it, they just, like, stand to do some music. Was this their last hit? Their last charting big charting hit i don't know i feel like First it comes all, at the end of the en vogue era great movie yes great performances would be a worthy nominee for anyone in that foursome uh this song is so good it and is. it's also like it was is. this of the era where you had to like show the branch the song in context because if it is no it was then they just that. got a full sex scene <laughs> uh if they'd who is uh, the sex scene? And the and reminds reminder. It's listeners. Jada and I think Blair Underwood. It's not bad. This is a good sex scene. It's not bad. Um, I mean, just a fucking banger of a song, unimpeachable. This is the era where you know popular songs were getting Oscar nominations, but. I I I have to as a gay person put this song on my list because I can't I can't uh I don't let go of this song. It is um a quintessential 90s song to me. I I just think it's a fucking banger and should have been nominated. I mean, uh, yes. So, En Vogue had six singles that would chart in the Billboard Hot 100. This was the last of them. This came after uh, Hold On, which peaked at number two. My Lovin', You're Never Gonna Get It, peaked at number two. Giving Him Something He Can Feel, which peaked at six. Free Your Mind, which peaked at eight. What a Man with Salt and Peppa peaked at three, which is crazy to me because, like, how is that not a number one single? That song was fucking right, everywhere. Right. And then Don't Let Go Love also peaked at number two. So En Vogue never had a number one Billboard Hot 100 single, which is kind of surprising. But they had three that peaked at number two. So uh, the heartbreak of it. All I'm saying is if the Academy frees their mind, the rest will follow. <laughs> Very good. It's a great song. It's a great movie. It's, it's a great it's song. It's a yeah. top five favorite songs ever. Yeah. Period. Yeah. For me. Uh, love it. Have um, they never? Have they ever done that as a lip sync for your life? Yes, they did. It was Bosco and Lady Camden. There we go. I think that lip sync is a little overrated, and I think yeah. the kind of uh, like awe people had for it really just kind of speaks to what a tremendous fucking song it is. That yeah. the song just has this kind of uh, like red hot focused power that just like sucks your attention into yeah. the high intensity and sexuality of the song. Yeah. Like, basically both of those queens kind of just park and bark it. Which and I can see the, the temptation for that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you gotta get, it's, it's about giving the emotion uh, to right. it. But, right. okay. I also feel like 
I may be giving away my boot in this category <laughs> offhand because, like, this is almost so close, almost so close to being a full lineup of, like, popular hit songs on the radio lineup of an original song category. And I'll just say the one I'm booting is for the first time from One Front Day. I think that's the day. I think that's the right call. It's the right call. But, like, the winner is You Must Love Me from Evita. Kind of a snoozy song, but it's fucking Madonna. It's, you I know, know, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I really, for as much as I, I appreciate a lot of things about that Evita uh, film, uh, You Must Love Me is a is a low point, I think. <laughs> uh, I finally found someone from The Mirror Has Two Faces, Because You Loved Me from Up Close and Personal. Hey. And That Thing You Do from That Thing You Do. Yeah. I've said this before, I still stand by it as the nominees stand. That would be my vote to win. Rest in peace, Adam Schlesinger. Yeah. Um, but, like, you have Don't Let Go in that lineup, and it's, like, nothing but radio hits. Yeah. And you also have your choice of Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn, I was or Diane say. Keaton saying, Don't Let Go, Love. Love. From Set It Off. Which, okay, which of those three do you want saying Don't Let Go, Goldie. Love? Because Goldie would say it like that. She would say, Don't Let Go, Love. From the movie <laughs> Set It Off. Yeah. That's exactly what I want. Not that I would want something that I would vote for to win over that thing you do, but yeah, I mean, no, it it turns it 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 changes the category into something really really special. Actually, yeah, because you got your Diane Warren in there, you got your Andrew Lloyd Webber in there, you've got uh, like you said Adam Schlesinger and uh, Barbara and 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 brian adams and song instead of have you ever really loved a woman the worst song i finally found someone music and lyrics it's by barbara streisand marvin hamlish brian adams and mutt lang like that's kind of an (laughs) all-star lineup to throw in uh for for one song so yeah all right, so you're booting, yeah, you're booting for the first time. Sorry, James Newton Howard. Sorry, uh, was it Kenny Loggins who sang that song? Yeah, it's not like it's not a not famous person singing yeah, the song. Yeah, but, but Kenny like, Loggins had Footloose. He had, you know, Highway to the Danger Zone in the 80s. He was, he's fine. He's doing fine. Yeah. I think that's the right call. All right, uh, bring us home, Joe Oh, bring Reed. us home. How, what are we closing out this episode with? So, come up to the lab. And see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. Well, we're going to go back to the 1970s. This is not dissimilar from your uh, nomination for Divine for Hairspray, actually. I'm going to uh, nominate in the Best Actor category for 1975, Tim Curry for a little film called The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh... A movie we talked about on our screen drafts, our very first screen drafts when we did drag films that ended up somewhat accidentally as our number one, even though I'm not mad about it. Um, Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter in Rocky Horror Picture Show was never, certainly never in the Oscar conversation. That movie was a flop. That movie had to be reclaimed via, you know, midnight showings and and a true cult groundswell that was... Right. that. Basically, all other cult groundswells strive for what Rocky Horror Picture Show had, and nothing's ever attained that level. Sorry, even Rowdy Cat screenings. The the, the pandemic kind <laughs> of uh, nipped that one in the bud. Okay, so 
it's not just that it's a this like wild outre performance or whatever. It's also it's the whole kit and caboodle, right? It's it's you know appetizer meal and dessert. It's everything. The way he announces his presence, Tim Curry in this movie, stomping his boot from in that elevator and then emerges and does uh sweet transvestite is a moment in time that is a star uh vehicle thing that is leading performer energy that is main character energy um and everything else from the movie kind of emanates from that from that you know absolute control over what's happening on screen the character moves into you know the character is is imperious but also petulant but also you know mischievous and then ultimately sad and then ultimately uh tragic and curry never less than fully invests in the character never looks down at the character never sort of plays down to to the character in a condescending way and it's one of those things that exists has existed in pop culture for so long that you kind of take for granted that it's an actor mm-hmm. giving a performance at, who had to like find this character and find the energy and wavelength that he was going to you know perform this character at and it's uh, has he's been rewarded by you know being indelible in culture forever now and and I'm just saying that along with that, we could also give him the award of uh, an Oscar nomination, you know, retroactively from this little project of ours. Um, I don't There's know. a reason why revivals, uh, you know, tributes of Rocky Horror only have... There's a, a very low ceiling uh, to success, and it yeah. can't really become more successful than that. And I think it's because Tim Curry's performance is one of the handful that it's like it's just so iconic that you are constantly for anyone else to do it, you are constantly chasing exactly that. Like yeah. you can't even do variations. But then, even if you're doing, you're chasing that glory, you're never going to be Tim Curry. Like right. So in terms of the nominees that year. So this is another year where I have not seen all the nominees, unfortunately. I did not have time to correct all my blind spots. Jack Nicholson wins for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a, you know, one of the definitional Jack Nicholson performances in one of the sort of definitional movies of the 1970s. Uh, Al Pacino is nominated for Dog Day Afternoon, would have been my vote to win, I think. Uh, I, again, a lot of things in this world would have been different and maybe better if Pacino just wins for Dog Day Afternoon in 1975. <laughs> um, uh, we can, you know, think about that and travel down that road. I've never seen The Sunshine Boys, the movie that George Burns wins his sort of late-in-life Oscar for. Walter Matthau was nominated in Best Actor for that. Maximilian Schell was nominated for a movie called The Man in the Glass Booth, which was an Arthur Hiller movie about... I don't know. Um, oh, uh, uh, he plays a Nazi death camp survivor is looking like, I don't know. I've never seen the man in a glass booth. Um, and then James Whitmore like, plays is this a movie about the Pope. Uh, <laughs> it's a movie about uh, Ron Burgundy. In fact, it's the, uh, it's the glass case ah. of emotion. Um, uh, James Whitmore, who I mostly know as the guy from the Shawshank Redemption, um, 
played Harry Truman in a movie called Give Him Hell Harry! Exclamation point. And oh. see, that's why I'm bumping that nomination. Because just from just from the title, you're just sort of like, mm. yeah. it's a Harry Truman biopic, right? It's, sure. I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. I, this is This is me... The two you've seen, you're not bumping. I'm absolutely so. not bumping those two. And I've seen Walter Matthau, and I, I've seen the Sunshine Boys, and I would say you could boot Walter Matthau for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I think we're all probably going to agree with booting a Henry Truman biopic. Yeah. Harry Truman biopic. No, no, you know, nothing against James Whitmore, but also he's, you know, he passed away in 2009, so he's not going to hold it against me. And, you know, friends and family of the, the late James Whitmore you know, grant me some, some, some mercy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, ultimately I think Curry slots in over almost everybody. Pacino's still my number one in that category. I think he's tremendous in dog day afternoon, but, um, yeah, I think ultimately we are a, a richer and more interesting culture. If we had nominated Tim Curry in 1975 for a movie that had bombed horrifically and nobody ever wanted to talk about it again at that moment. <laughs> um, Chris, that is our 20th entry for you and I for today. So that is our part two. Do you want to run us down the the list of nominees that we have added to the historical record through this episode? As a recap from part two of our 100 Years 100 Snubs, Aiko Ishioka for The Cell, Best Costume Design 2000, Jennifer Garner in Juno, Best Supporting Actress 2007, if Beale Street Could Talk Best Picture 2018. Vindicated from Spider-Man 2 Best Original Song 2004. Jim Carrey, The Truman Show Best Actor 1998. David Fincher, Zodiac Best Director 2007. Divine in Hairspray Best Supporting Actor of 1988. Velvet Goldmine for Best Makeup 1998. Ray Arbogast for The Thing, Best Visual Effects, 1982. Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally, Best Actress, 1989. Edward Young's Yee Yee, Best Director, 2000. Every Little Step, Best Documentary Feature, 2009. Russell Meddy, All That Heaven Allows, Best Cinematography, Color, 1955. Nope, Best Sound, 2022. Kathleen Byron, Black Narcissus, Best Supporting Actress, 1947. Elizabeth Moss, Her Smell, Best Actress, 2019. Sharon Stone, Basic Instinct, Best Actress, 1992. Sean Bobbitt, The Place Beyond the Pines, Best Cinematography, 2013. Don't Let Go, Love, from Set It Off, Best Original Song, 1996. And Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Picture Show Best Actor of 1975. We also want to thank our guest contributions. Uh, Matt Jacobs voted for Kathleen Turner in Serial Mom, Best Actress 1994. And Mitchell Beaupre says Don Cheadle in Devil in a Blue Dress, Best Supporting Actor of 1995. All right, Chris, that is part two of 100 Years, 100 Snubs. We are two-fifths of the way there. We have three more episodes to go, listeners. We hope you are enjoying this uh, ride we are taking you on through 
uh, cinematic snubbery throughout the years. <laughs> uh, that is though, that is our episode. If you want the more, this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscar You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at this had Oscar buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and letterbox at crispy file. That's F E I L. I am on Letterboxd and Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So remember when everything was beautiful at the ballet, at the ballet, at the ballet! And write us a nice review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more snubs. A ticket to the